Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Well, uh, happy, happy Saturday to all of you. You know, just as I predicted, and if you doubt me, go on my Substack page and you'll see the article I wrote on August 25th. Just as I predicted, the GOP, like the 1969 Chicago Cubs, threw away all but certain victory by embracing MAGA lunatics, election deniers, book banning inquisitors, and, you know, cruelty as public policy. Donald Trump picked the worst of their candidates, and he made them, and he made many Americans feel powerful. He promised them they would take over the country, and the rest of the GOP let him get away with it. Well, America just said no, again. And then there was this revelation from the Republican representative, Tom Emmer from Minnesota. He is the chair of the National Republican Congressional Campaign Committee. And he told a reporter, he said, Republicans should be extremely happy with the election results. Well, the aha moment, uh, the thing that makes this, you know, a revelation comes when you take him seriously. I mean, just think about what the GOP did when they had power, right? When they had the Senate, the House, and the White House, when Donald Trump was president, they said they would fix the deficit but they cut taxes and ballooned the deficit. They said they would appoint judges who would restore confidence in the courts. (laughs) Confidence? The Supreme Court, in addition to now being illegitimate, dangerous, polls somewhere between slime mold and your uncle's karaoke party. They they said they would uh, give us infrastructure, but they couldn't deliver. They said they would replace the Affordable Care Act, but they couldn't even be bothered to write a bill. They said they would build a wall. And they had a developer in the White House, and yet they couldn't figure it out. Underperforming is what the GOP does when it has a chance to govern. And so now Tom Emmer said the quiet part out loud, bragging about underperforming in now in elections. Well, here's the thing. Underperforming is just another weird thing Republicans do. But hey, if they want to be happy about this epic collapse, more power to them. Although really, more power to us. Right. The MAGA right sought to intimidate us with pointed rhetoric and pointed firearms. They worked themselves up into a passionate fit where white nationalist outrage and great replacement terror are real things. And they and they told us to be scared of their inevitable red wave everywhere. You looked red wave. It's coming for you like stormtroopers. But Americans were not bullied. We didn't cower in fear. What did we do? We do. We did what we always do. We ran fair elections. So let's celebrate how close we are to holding the U.S. Senate. And we may know while we're on the show about that. Let's celebrate the real gains in state legislatures around the country. Let's celebrate denying the election deniers jobs where they oversee elections. Let's celebrate turning back book banning school board candidates all over the country. Let's celebrate America's ability to hold large, free and fair elections. And let's celebrate the Democrats 
and the Republicans who lost with grace and dignity. They deserve credit for getting into the arena and for strengthening our faith in elections by both running and losing. Let's celebrate each other. We did it, right? Hundreds of thousands of our neighbors, you know, as they always do, but this time under the threat of intimidation, they showed up to staff polling places and count votes. And millions upon millions showed up to vote. And they didn't care one bit about what the so-called election experts predicted they would do. They went to vote with a majesty and a seriousness of purpose like the sovereigns they are. If, as seems likely, although you know not as likely as anybody would have thought, but still, I think they have the edge. If the GOP gains the majority in the House, I hope they make Jim Jordan the speaker. Let America compare his brand of nasty, dishonest, outraged, feckless impotence to Nancy Pelosi's disciplined and impactful leadership. After Jim Jordan barks like a dog for two years, Americans will long for the days when Speaker Pelosi, President Biden, and a Democratic Senate delivered infrastructure, delivered health care, economic growth, jobs, climate action, and common decency. Just ask all those young Americans who showed up and proved to their elders that the future is safe in their hands. Look, there are many, uh, uh, many lessons in this election, lessons about polls, lessons about reporting, lessons about campaigning. But the the most important lesson for me um, and for all of us may be this. We are better, more patriotic, more committed to the democracy, more committed to decency, more tolerant of each other, more interested in moving forward together than either side gave us credit for. So I, I am, um, you know, I'm starting my second year, give or take a few weeks. I mean, it's, I'm past the anniversary, but I'm starting my second year with you. And we ended this first with a long run up to a very consequential election. And of course, we are not done. You know, I think this last election <clears throat> is the beginning of the end of the MAGA disease in the country. But there's a lot uh, of it still out there. We're not out of the woods with election deniers. You know, we have a lot of that to go. And we also just have the hard work of governing. Something else I talked to you about, the policy choices, the talent to implement them. I'm more a big, complicated, diverse country in a bigger, more complicated, more diverse world. Um, we have a lot of work to do. And, and But after this election... I have the sense that maybe we'll be allowed to do it. And for that, I'm deeply, deeply grateful. <clears throat> okay. I have a fabulous show lined up for you today. Um, we're going to talk with uh, Victoria Bassetti at States United Action. We've talked to her before, but they have been following election deniers um, and election subversion better than anybody. And she can talk about what we gained and what's still to do. Dean Baker will be coming on. He's a fabulous economist who can talk to us about things like inflation in a way that will help us understand um, the tools that we have and what's really going on. Will Bunch, the 
terrific uh, Philadelphia Inquirer reporter will be here. And of course, you know, Pennsylvania was wow. But first, Sarah, Sarah Posner is back. And um, I, I hope you all remember Sarah. She's an investigative journalist, an author who's widely cited work on the religious right and Republican politics has, you know, brought to light at the terrifying heart, soul, I don't know, of the right wing. And, and from time to time, she is kind enough to join us here to explain how we got here and what we're looking forward to. Sarah, welcome back. Thanks for having me again, Edwin. Okay, um, let's just start with this. Uh, were you surprised? I was. <laughs> I was surprised by some things and not by others. Yes. Yeah. Were you uh, happy? Yes, most definitely. Um, I, I guess I was surprised, pleasantly surprised, that more election deniers did not win office. But I was mortified at the number of them who did. Right. So like we had some was a good news, bad news sort of situation. But I think in some key states and key offices, I cannot overstate how important it was that the Democrat defeated the Republican. For example, in Pennsylvania, that Josh Shapiro defeated uh, uh, Doug Mastriano for governor. Don't say his Uh, name. We never have to hear it again. Exactly. But in yeah. also in Arizona, Michigan. Democrat dif- and Michigan and mm-hmm. uh, Wisconsin. So I think that those races can really alleviate a lot of the anxiety we had about the possibility that in 2024, there would be um, election deniers and pro-Trump, pro-MAGA people who were willing to you know, commit crimes or subvert the will of will of the voters uh, in order to install Trump in office. And I think that that was a huge, huge victory. I do, too. Hey, you've done such a not just a good job, a really important job of explaining the rise of right wing Christian nationalism and its bizarre fixation on Donald Trump. What happens to that movement now that you know, America pretty clearly rejected it at the polls and certainly rejected Donald Trump again. I mean, his crop of candidates didn't fare very well. That's got to, that's got to, when people think that, you know, he's a prophet, this continued failure of his, uh, of his, you know, he's not raising the dead. He's not, you know, he he just does not working out for him. That's got to matter at some point, doesn't it? Well, it would matter only in from the standpoint of would they choose another Republican? It would not matter from the standpoint of would they reject this kind of politics? But let me talk a little bit about the long view of this, and then we can talk about the immediate view of this. There's a joke. I would love that. Reporters who cover the religious right. And that joke is when the press, the political press says the religious right is dead. And we just chuckle to ourselves because it is a statement that has been said time and time again and has been proven wrong time and time again. I'm not trying to say that the religious right is a majority in this country by any stretch of the imagination, but they are such a central, they are the central constituency 
of the Republican Party. The Republican Party cannot win. It would not be a party if they did not get out to vote and vote for Republican candidates. So therefore, we have to contend with them in our politics, regardless of whether um, we believe that they represent a majority of voters. They they use their control of the Republican Party um, in order to basically try to govern through like a tyranny of the minority. And they've been successful in many instances, you know, Dobbs, the Dobbs decision being one of them. Okay, great example. So we need to we need to keep that in mind as we assess what is happening here. Yes. The 2022 midterms were a repudiation of Trump, I think, pretty, pretty clearly. And now you're seeing other Republicans smell blood in the water. And so they're trying to position themselves to be the alternative to Trump for Republican voters. Ron DeSantis comes to mind. And so those Republicans are. Yes, we will talk about it. But a lot of those Republicans, all of those Republicans candidates or potential candidates have to appeal to this same base. You can't win an election, a national election as a Republican without it. So the idea that they're going to completely turn their backs on Trump or MAGA or Trumpism, we should not expect that because that's not what is going to happen. They might try to you know, sanitize it a little bit since they see that it's not uh, popular with independent voters and other voters that they might hope to get um, in 2024. But I think the expectation that this is um, like a final judgment on all of this is is, is incorrect. Yeah. I think it's something I, that needs to, you know, yeah. Yeah. So, Sarah, I, I, I am not making that mistake. I do think, though, it's really interesting. You pointed out that the, that the GOP can't win without them. I'm not sure they can win with them. And that's partly your work. Once now the rest of yeah. America knows what this movement is, we're appalled. And, and so the Republicans are in a really difficult spot because, as you say, they can't win without them. They don't have any votes without them. But with them, those are the only votes they have. And that's not going to be enough. Right. I mean, but they do have some structural advantages, including gerrymandering the Electoral College and the Senate. Yeah. Oh, it's uphill for Democrats. No question. Right. Right. And so that's obviously what they're going to count on. There are deep red states that the Republican presidential candidate is going to be able to count on in 2024, whether it's Trump or another Republican candidate. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then, I mean, in 2018, nobody anticipated that Trump in 2020 would try to do the things that he tried to do in Georgia or Pennsylvania or Michigan. So I think we need, you know, we obviously need to be alert to all of those things. He has manipulated the Republican Party in such a way that, you know, he still hasn't been held accountable for January 6th. He still hasn't been held accountable for the run up to January 6th and the fake elector scheme and all the rest, not to mention the other things that he did in office. So, you know, there is still... Yeah, or, or the stealing of federal no documents that he did after, afterwards. Right. I mean, there's, right. there's still no real appetite within the Republican Party to hold him accountable. No, we're going to wait for the, we're going to wait for the Justice Department to do it. And I don't think we'll have to wait that much longer. Um, I I, you know, I read, a, I read a really um, interesting but overly long novel. Um, 
when I couldn't sleep during the election cycle. It's called the Books of Jacob, and it was a, it, it won I, for I its author Olga. To discuss it, this book with somebody for months. Uh, all right, well, it won for her the Nobel Prize. Yeah, right. It, and it is about what happens after a false prophet is gone, and then it yes. turns out, you know what? Others pick up that mantle. So that yep. I thought it was relevant to our conversation. Definitely. And, you know, I read that book um, probably, you know, February to March of this year. And yeah, it would have taken that long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, you know, because the English translation just became available, like, last year right. or this year. Um, it's, right. uh, the, the author is Polish. She's incredible. Yep. And it's an incredible book. Um, a fictionalization of an incredible true story, actually. Um, and yes, it is about messianic fervor and um, how uh, self-anointed messianic figures can exploit that kind of messianic fervor to their advantage. Yes, definitely very relevant. Right. Very relevant. But it also says that like, even when, when the first false messiah is just proven not to be one, the followers mm-hmm. are not done. They're going to pick somebody else. They can't admit that they got it wrong, right? So they get in, dig into a bigger conspiracy. Well, I think that there's um, – they don't admit that it's wrong to wait, you know, to be looking for that new Messiah. They believe in that so fervently that – they're willing to sort of like move on to the next one if one doesn't work out or one turns out not to be exactly what they were looking for, but they don't give up on the idea. And so, right. some people do. So let's just actually. tell I mean, tell, you, know, tell you so guys who are listening. It's <laughs> true. They're, yes. For those of you who are listening. Sarah uh, in, in, in the book club today. <laughs> yeah. In, 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 so uh, in, in the Middle Ages, late Middle, middle Ages, uh, or just well, the beginning of the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, the, the, in the Jewish European world, uh, uh, there was a great fervor about a potential prophet, Shabtai Svi. And he, he, he really, everybody in that world, lots of people thought that was it. Um, he ended up uh, going to the Ottoman Empire, converting to Islam, and going to work for the Sultan. Um Many people were disenchanted, but others, and this is where I sort of get the the link to what's going on today. Others said, no, 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 no. Converting was part of his plan. That was just, it just mean we, we had to go through even a more sort of convoluted path to, to salvation than we thought. So, that, so in order not to give up on the dream of the Messiah, they just invented a whole bunch of new stuff um, that made that apostasy actually part of the divine plan. I thought it was fascinating. Right. But then the book is about um, Jacob, who comes along and, gosh, now I'm forgetting uh, his last name. Um, Frank. But he comes along. Frank. Frank. Yaakov uh, Frank, right. And so he comes along and he says, you know, no, no, actually, I'm, you know, I'm the Messiah. And he um converts to Christianity also, and, um, and he gets very, in the, uh, there are church figures in the book who become very enraptured with him because they think that this is a way to get all of the Jews to convert to Christianity. Um, right. And so he, uh, 
purports to be a Jewish Messiah, um, but then he is used by or willingly used by church figures to try to convert all the Jews to Christianity. It's fascinating. And it's based on, you know, an actual, you know, it's based on a true story of this uh, 18th century figure. Yes. But, um, right, it's, it's definitely relevant to how, you know, religious figures use and exploit and get used and exploited uh, by political mm-hmm. figures and um, how they enrapture their followers, um, not only with their own personal charisma, but by developing and cultivating um, a following around them that entices other people to also follow them. So we have Donald Trump and now we have Ron DeSantis. <laughs> Donald Trump seems to be, yes. with DeSantis's help, fading a little bit. Um, but not so much. He's going to make some big announcement this week about his own plans. How how does their fight play out inside the Christian right? Well, I think that definitely remains to be seen. I think that DeSantis is very popular on the American right as a whole, including on the religious right. And he uh, just before the election, put out a new ad that they only ran online. They didn't show it on TV, um, which basically said, you know, God created the world in seven day, six days, rested on the seventh day. And on the eighth day, he created Ron DeSantis to send him to save your freedom from the terrible liberals. And, um, you know, this is hold on one second. I, I saw that, too, but you have to repeat it because it just sounds like a joke. But he really did it. He really did it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, I, I, hang on. Is- Sarah, Sarah, hold that thought for a minute. Um, I'm going to we need to take a break because I forgot to take one right when you came on. Um, so let's okay. take a break right now. And I want while we're breaking, I want you guys just to think about Ron DeSantis being made by God on the eighth day. And we'll come back and talk about what what that means in just a second. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, we are back, and I'm talking to Sarah Posner, an investigative journalist who has done more than anybody to un, um, unshroud what's gone on with the uh, white nationalist Christian movement and the Republican Party over the years. Sarah, um, we're back, and... So the the Trump DeSantis fight, it both the base likes both of them, but do they split? Do they split? Do they come together? Is this a fight that is going to bruise anyone? What's that going to be like? I think I think it's going to be uh, interesting to watch. I would not make any predictions here. I think that there's going to probably be a lot of dirty tricks on both sides because there are certainly. Republicans who are tired of Donald Trump, even Republican, you know, office holders, leaders, strategists, and so forth, who are tired of Donald Trump and would rather move on without him and, um, you know, would want to see somebody else in, in his place, whether it's Ron DeSantis or another, another uh, candidate. But on the other hand, you know, the Trump, you know, Trump himself is, you know, sort of a, a devotee of dirty tricks, someone who's had, you know, Roger Stone at his side for decades and someone who does not hesitate to just completely eviscerate anybody who stands in his way of regaining power. 
Um, so I think we should not underestimate how Trump is going to um, react to a prospective DeSantis run or run by anybody else. Just remember, you know, little Marco, Lion Ted, yeah, yeah. all of yeah, those things he yeah. did in 2016. I, I, so I guess is, I'm asking a slightly different question, right? Okay. Slightly different because I totally agree. Right? They are both capable of impossibly uh, outrageous politics. Um, right. But if but, but when you add into it this notion that that the divine is behind one of them, mm-hmm. you, you yeah. know, God can't be behind both of them when they're fighting each other at the same time. I don't think there's got to be some. Well, so, I mean, you know, people win and lose elections all the time. And, and mostly in America, we go, OK, you know, live to fight another day, maybe. But if it's if it's if it's got this religious fervor behind it, mm-hmm. it, it mm-hmm. somebody's a false prophet and somebody isn't because you can't both be or can you? I mean, it's, it's beyond my cognitive capabilities. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I think that I think that the base is capable of of moving around. Um, you know, they may be capable of saying to themselves the mantra that comes out of the mouths of a lot of religious right leaders, which is no president in history has done more for Christians or Christianity than Donald Trump. This is a common refrain on the religious right. It's commonly believed by the base. Um, but they, I could see them also holding in their head that perhaps, you know, it's time for him to pass the mantle to a protege um, who would, you know, basically use his his presidency as as a model. Uh, so I, I don't think that it's I do think that they're capable of moving on to another another anointed figure to follow. But I don't think it's a given that they're going to do it. A lot of mm-hmm. you know, a lot of what's going to happen is going to have to play out whether, you know, whether Trump is indicted, whether other mm-hmm. people, other leaders in the Republican Party finally give him the shiv or not. I mean, and and so I think he's going to always have his hardcore base that's never going to give up on him and is always going to believe it's a witch hunt and a hoax and all the rest of it. And that, you know, Mitch McConnell betrayed him or whatever the narrative they want to believe. And then I think that there are people who are probably persuadable to get on board with another candidate if they could be persuaded that that person has a better chance of beating Joe Biden or whoever the Democratic nominee is Mm -hmm. in 2024. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're not there is a political calculus that goes into it for a lot of uh, a lot of the base, even if they're also, you know, looking for a sign from up on high. Okay. So a lot of the radicalizations, I understand it, happened over the issue of abortion over the last 30 years. If that's right, I also, you know, the, the, this is not a group that says we want minority rule in America. They just, in fact, they think they're, they represent most of America and they lost because the elections were stolen, right? They just think, but how do they deal with their, you know, reproductive choice won every time it was on the ballot, and not just in liberal states. I mean, it won in Kansas and Kentucky, not just. Yeah. But, you yeah. Know, I, I, I go. Hi, does this does this not serve as some kind of reality? You know, that says to them, you know, you're, you're what you think is not where America is. 
oh, well, that doesn't matter because they think that they are right. They think that they have the Supreme Court on their side, and they do. They do. Um, And to them, it's just a sign that they need to keep fighting. It's not a sign that they should give up. Uh, So uh, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't really make a difference. It causes them to redouble their efforts. They believe that they're they, they believe they're carrying out God's will. This is what God wants them to do to restore a Christian America, you know, that's been undermined by secularism and feminists and, and other leftists. So, and the Enlightenment. That's so let's just go peg it all the way back there. And, and the Enlightenment. Sorry. And the Enlightenment. <laughs> right. But like, let's just talk from like 1950 onward, you know, and that's what they're, you know, that's what they're looking at. They don't like the changes that happened from basically that point forward. Well, but they have groups around the country fundraising on the right, saying they are going to they're going to bring the youth vote to them because because young people want to live in the kind of pure world that they're describing. I, I can't remember. There are a whole bunch of them like Turning Point USA and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Right. That, sure. Mm-hmm. That they go, we raise tons of money saying, you don't understand when we tell young Americans about who we are, when we have like God camp for them, they're going to abandon that secular life. They're going to come running to us. I, of course, that's, the opposite that's, that's is happening, mirage, right? That, right. That's a mirage that they want to create. They're, you know, they want to raise money. Um, they want to bring in a lot of money so that they can do their conferences and all the rest of it. But it's it's a mirage. Let me tell you a story about Turning Point USA. I was I was scheduled to speak at a at a large public university, and the Turning Point USA chapter on the campus, a, a university of about, about thirty thousand students. Okay, the um. The Turning Point chapter tried to get my talk canceled because I had written a book that they said was anti-Christian. The school administration just ignored their request. I went and I gave my talk and they showed up at my talk um, to protest. But there were six of them, six on a campus of 30,000 students. Okay, so these are a small number of kids trying to make a lot of noise. And hoping that there's something that it's like a lot of throwing spaghetti at the wall. And all of these kids are hoping, hoping that one of their, you know, protests, you know, goes viral on social media and they get on Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson and they become like a star. That's what's going on here. Right. And so I'm not saying that Turning Point and some of these other groups aren't dangerous in terms of their their political ideology and what they're trying to convince these young people of. But you have to also put it in the perspective that if you if you were to see one of them on Fox News, like this is this is how it happened. Like they got lucky in terms of turning an event into a into a circuit. Yeah, I I mean, I'm glad you you told this story because the the other narrative we hear from I don't know Tucker Carlson is that cancel culture is just a phenomena on the left, whereas the right, right has been and these, and these mean, college students were trying to get my talk literally canceled. Yeah, 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 yeah. crazy stuff, absolutely crazy stuff. Well, so so um, hmm, I'm just trying to I'm wondering what your sense is. You know, is this is this 
more dominant in some states than in others? Where where is the we, if you had to like do a heat map across the U.S. of the Christian nationalist, you know, f- fervor, what would it look like? It's because it's not here in Illinois or a very small amount, you know. Well, I, yes, I think it's present everywhere, but yep. the heat map is glowing in states where Republicans control the state legislature. I mean, that's where a lot of the action is. So you mean like Wisconsin? Well, I'm thinking more like Arkansas, for example, Um, Ohio, Florida, certainly. Um, And so I think to see where the see the heat map and see where it is they'd like to go with all of this, you really have to look at what's going on at the state level, because that's where they're sort of incubating um, their next big thing. Right. So they've been for the last, uh, you know, seven or eight years incubating the anti-trans stuff in state legislatures Mm -hmm. because they saw Obergefell coming down the line and they had to do their next thing on uh, anti-LGBTQ rights. So, you know, yes, like there were a lot of fantastic results in Tuesday's election, but remember that, you know, trans kids in Arkansas and other states are, you know, facing all sorts of efforts in the state legislature to, you know, deprive them of their rights to play sports, to use the bathroom, to even, you know, get health care. So, um, you know, these are things that are, are driven by um, Christian nationalist organizations and the money behind them and uh, legislators who get elected uh, in in these states to carry, you know, specifically to carry out that kind of agenda. And so I think it's 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 short sighted to lose sight of everything that's happening in these in in Republican controlled state legislatures mm-hmm. that are aimed mm-hmm. at restricting access to abortion or anti LGBTQ stuff or stuff that, you know, you know, the governor of Oklahoma who declared the whole state to be um, you know, under Jesus's control. Yeah, I worked in Saudi and he, and he for just, a while. He I mean, just, it doesn't work realistic. out that well. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what happened to General Flynn's army? They had a religious army, right, that they were putting together and going state to state. I can't remember the name of the mm-hmm. group. It was called the Reawaken America Tour. Mm-hmm. Right. And, what happened to um, You know, well, I mean, they're still, you know, going around, uh, you know, basically running these Christian nationalist revivals that promote the lie that uh, Donald Trump actually won the 2020 election and he's the rightful president and that the Democrats are terrible and satanic and, you know, and just a lot of um you know, a lot of this sort of extreme charismatic prophesying and and uh, spiritual warfare uh, stuff going on with that. And you know, he's been going around the country doing these um, doing these revivals and you know, getting audiences of of you know three thousand people. And so it's pretty dangerous stuff because he's um, you know basically uh, brainwashing his audience into believing that the 2020 election was stolen. Uh, who knows what he's telling them now about the 2022 midterms. 
and that the, it's their duty as Christian patriots to you know engage in spiritual warfare to defeat the enemy. So you know, this stuff is still going on, you know, two years on from the 2020 election. If you get into the mindset, though, of of the people who show up who are subject to the brainwashing, as you say, to the have this whatever faith experience they may, they then attribute to um, their their politics. But there's an underlying sort of common decency of human beings. So when they when they have this point of view, and then they see one of their adherents go break into a house trying to hunt Nancy Pelosi and instead hammer the head of her 80-some-year-old husband, isn't there a just a natural feeling of, oh, my gosh, we can't be doing this? I don't think we saw that at all. I mean, I think we saw the wow. opposite. Look at the number of Republicans and other right-wing leaders who, like, made fun of, of or, or made a joke out of the assault on Paul Pelosi. Now, Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, who did so on the campaign trail, later wrote a handwritten note to Nancy Pelosi apologizing for it. But he didn't, you know, apologize in public. And the fact that he would do it in the first place is just so abominable. It's, it's not to be believed. But this is the party that has portrayed Speaker Pelosi for years, for years. They have vilified her and demonized her and sent out fundraising letters that that do those things and portrayed her as, you know, a satanic enemy of America. And then is, know, and then to say nothing or to make a joke yeah. of it. It's just it's just horrific. It's um, right. But they somewhere in their book, it says, love thy neighbor. I don't get it at all. Is there something particularly anti-feminist about this? I mean, because they have gone after her with a with a cruelty and a and spent a lot of money doing it um, that I would say is unprecedented except they did it worse to Hillary and for longer that's right yep mm-hmm. and just think about you know so yes it is misogynistic but also think of all the racist attacks on Barack Obama they're good at finding an enemy and you know vilifying them to rile up their base Um, do you see after they can, I mean, again, if this is their base, they won't win elections, even with, even with gerrymandering, this is just phenomenally unpopular. I mean, if if it's 30% of America, it's not ever going to be 40%, 50%, because the rest of us, again, your work, we're fighting back. But think about it. I mean, they haven't called the governor's race in Arizona yet. And Carrie Lake, who really exemplifies this mean spiritedness more than perhaps any other candidate who ran this cycle. And that race is still undecided. It's too close to call. So I don't think that it has been overwhelmingly repudiated, sadly. Oh, I, I do. And they're going to win some victories because we're still in a fight. We're still in a real fight, as you point out. But but we're winning a lot more than we are, than we had any right to win this cycle. You know, um, uh, with all of the headwinds against us in having I mean, I, in I the party and power. Democratic voters showed up for sure. But I also think that Republican voters showed up, too, in numbers enough 
to vote for a candidate like Carrie Lake, who, like I said, really is like the pinnacle of this like mean spiritedness that they're that they're pulling out now. And, uh, you know, like I said, that race is still too close to call. And that's disturbing that that many people in, in Arizona thought that she would make a good governor. Yeah. I mean, again, her TV, I mean, Doug Mastriano didn't prevail. He was like that. She, she is dangerous. Her TV experience. She was in people's homes as a different person for years with a different persona. I think, and I think people haven't helped her true. Right. Like Donald Trump in the apprentice, you know, it didn't, they haven't quite figured out that this new, the danger of this new behavior that we're seeing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it is really appalling. I have uh, my mother-in-law lives in Arizona and she has been and you know, almost 90. She's been out with her signs every day doing her, doing her bit um, mm-hmm. to try and remind people that crazy doesn't do anybody any good. Yep. Sarah, we have to take one more break. Um, so stay with me. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking to Sarah Posner about the religious right in American politics, and we'll have more in just a moment. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Sarah, um, by the way, just if you just joined me after that break, I'm talking to Sarah Posner, an investigative journalist who really can explain the religious right and their connection to politics and Republican politics in America. Sarah, um, I guess this can happen in any family that somebody falls into uh, the Christian nationalist world. What are the signs people should look for that somebody is, you know, at risk? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of it like an illness um, that they're being recruited. What, what do people need to know? Well, I think that um, it, I, I don't, I don't know that I would call it like recruitment necessarily, but I think a lot of people are drawn to the idea that they're part of like a kind of on a divine mission, so to speak. Um, so Christian nationalists believe that God intended America to be founded as a Christian nation, that that Christian nation's heritage has been subverted by liberalism, secularism, feminism, the LGBTQ rights movement, atheism, et cetera, um, the Democratic Party, uh, and that it's their duty. Reading books, as, yeah. As, you're right, as, uh, as Christian patriots to engage in spiritual warfare as well as, you know, get involved in politics um, to restore America to its Christian values and its Christian heritage. And it's that place where they can't distinguish really between spiritual warfare and like just getting involved in politics. And, you know, we saw it on January 6th with, you know, people carrying Bibles or praying in Jesus's name in the Senate chamber um, and citing the Bible as they stormed the Capitol. Uh, You know, that's the that's the space in which, you know, they can't they can't uh, distinguish between proper involvement in politics and advocating for a political cause 
and carrying out what they believe to be a divine duty to literally fight with political enemies to save America. And uh, I don't so I don't I know enough that, to understand some of what you just told me. For example, carry out spiritual warfare. What is, is spiritual warfare just proselytizing, trying to convince somebody that you can save your soul by going in, in one direction or is it something else? Right. Right. What is it? it, it I mean, is it jihad? It, what you know, in part of the world, that's praying, what it is. Right. It's what is it here? Praying, it's praying to try to vanquish satanic enemies of America. Um, and so uh, over the years that I've reported on the religious right, when you see a leader talking about this, they're always very quick to point out that, you know, I'm not talking about flesh and blood. I'm talking about powers and principalities. So we're not talking about like actual fighting and war. We're just talking about, you know, like praying so that, you know, your enemies will be vanquished. But what I'm saying here is like what, you know, what we saw on January 6th, for example, is that there were people who couldn't distinguish between those two things. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And powers that are willing to use the fervor in a strictly yeah. uh, secular way. Well, not even a strictly secular way, but to like to incite people they know have this believe they have this religious imperative to incite them to um, perhaps carry out something that's not just uh, powers and principalities. I mean, I yeah. think that's the danger of the of the Mike Flynn rallies, and it's been the danger of a lot of Trump's rhetoric too. Okay, so so um, what do you? What are the things that people should be, you know, um, the signs that a community, you know, I just want to give people the, mm, the tool set for dealing with this movement as it continues to find its way into our politics. And I mean, I, I think America did a pretty good job of standing up to it this last election, not didn't win everything, but we did a pretty good job. But how do we, see, how do we see it earlier? How do we know when it's coming so that we can address it, you know, like not at the last minute with a knife to our throat? Well, I think you have to understand that the right in the United States is ever present. And it goes through phases where it's relegated more to the margins and phases where a leader comes along and incites in it and attempts to make it, uh, bring it more into the mainstream. And in recent memory, you know, it, Donald Trump has been the best at bringing it into the mainstream. And that is not just the religious right, but like white supremacists and neo-Nazis. You know, when the president of the United States says there were very fine people on both sides, then that's bringing, you know, these neo-Nazi or Nazi groups into into the mainstream. And so I think that, um, you know, if you're concerned that somebody in your life is falling into white supremacy, you know, neo-Nazi extremism, what, you know, whatever it is, or just, you know, you know, kind of a more garden variety um, Christian nationalist uh, movement, I think you just have to, you know, be aware of like, you know, the main, you know, like the mo most urgent thing is, are you know, are they inclined to violence on behalf of this movement, but mm -hmm, you know, also mm -hmm. be aware of like the things that they're saying, the books that they're reading, like what they're saying to you, what they're saying to their friends. Um, but you know, if it's, if it's, um, you know, Christian nationalism that, that 
someone's concerned about, they should be thinking about whether the person is talking about, you know, that it's their, you know, duty to engage in spiritual warfare, that like somebody has taken away America's Christian heritage and they have to fight to restore it, that sort of thing. And are there things that you would recommend for, because this is, this is not a problem in the Democratic Party. We have different problems, uh, but this is a problem in the Republican Party. And they don't want to fight it. They want to use it. So they've, they haven't, uh, they've welcomed this battle into the GOP. How, what, is there, a, is there a, a, a strategy that you think is useful for Democrats? We've learned that we have to organize all year long, not just at campaign time. Right. And, and that is that's the reality of the world we live in. This is a, not a, just a political problem. It's an American culture problem that we have to talk to our neighbors every day to, as you said, get them back to the margins and out of this dangerous place where they have so much control of our lives beyond their numbers in the population. Um, so are there strategies in the daily fight to shed light on what they're doing and to push back that we need to be following? Are you talking about Democratic Party leaders or just rank and file folks? I'll take either, but let's do both. Start with whatever one is is clearest. Well, I I think that for, for Democratic Party leaders, I think they have to be unafraid of taking on religious nationalism. They have to be unafraid to, like, I think the Democrats used to be afraid of taking on the religious Democratic leaders used to be afraid of taking on the religious right because they were afraid of the, you know, being accused of being anti-Christian or anti-religious. And I think that that, you know, that ship has sailed. They have to be unafraid of that because this is not religion. This is a dangerous political ideology that is anti-democracy and anti-freedom for anybody other than themselves. And so I think that, you know, Democratic leaders have to make that absolutely clear. And I think that because the conservative movement and the Republican Party have seized, you know, with the assistance of, you know, the media and whatever, you know, political strategists and all the rest, you know, have, have, have sort of controlled the dialogue on who's pro-freedom, right? And I think that, you know, if you're trying to convince one of your neighbors, for example, that, you know, why they should vote for the Democrat instead of the Republican. I think talking about it in terms of freedom is very salient right now, because I think there are very clear examples of how the Republican Party is trying to deny your freedom, you know, to have an abortion, to vote, uh, you know, to access the health care that your trans child needs to stay alive. Um, And so I think that that kind of framing of it as, a, as an issue of like democracy and freedom. I know that there was that big discussion before the, before the election that, you know, the, the, the pro-democracy message wasn't resonating with voters, but I think we've seen a lot of evidence that it does. Yeah. The coverage in the news coverage was just way off, way, way off. Well, Sarah, way, the, way off. the, 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 uh, you, you've stunned me yet again um, in how, how, deep your understanding of this phenomena in our culture is. You stunned me by being the only other person in America who's actually read the books of Jacob. Um, 
and, and you, you know, you give us hope, I think, that if we look realistically at the power of this movement, and its continued efforts, we that there's a chance that it that we can push it back, you know, out of out of the center of our politics again. Uh, so I know it's not a, it's not going to happen soon. It's a con- big fight, but it's happened before. But I'm, I'm I'm glad I'm glad to to end this on that note of optimism. We will talk again. I hope we will. Thank you, Sarah. All right, everybody. That was the remarkable Sarah Posner, uh, investigative journalist who has been investigating white Christian nationalism in America and its links to the Republican Party. And it is always terrifying and fascinating um, to get the chance to talk to her. We're going to take a break for the news. Um, and when we come back, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning Will Bunch will join us. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, we are back, and now I'm joined by the thoughtful and Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, Will Bunch. Will, welcome back. Hey, hey Edwin, how's it going? Uh, well, I, I'm not unhappy with how it's going, and I want to... I wanna, Thank you and give you the, the uh, credit you deserve for keeping your promise. Um, I, I think it was months ago on this show, you said that you were going to make it your mission to make sure that everyone in the state, because, you, you know, they, they read your comment, that they all knew who Doug Mastriano was. You delivered. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I wrote, I did write a bunch of columns about him, about, <clears throat> I wrote a lot about his, um, well, God, there was so much, you know, but I mean, his uh, ties to religious extremism, his fetish for the lost cause of the Confederacy. I mean, that was really weird. Um, uh, but also also some more substantive stuff, like his, um, I was really the first person to write about his education policies, which were horrific. I mean, he wanted to cut state aid to education per pupil in half, and along with a scheme that would you know, privatize things by giving the money to the parents instead of uh, to the school, you know, so that they could homeschool or, or go to a Christian school or, or whatever. And uh, I, I wrote about his extreme homophobia, which really sometimes seemed to be the driving force of his campaign if you, if you paid attention to his rally. So, so I wrote about all those things. And, um, you, know, I, you know, I'm not the only person who was talking about them. Other people were as well. And his campaign never got off the ground, really. You know, he never, he never really came within 10 percentage points. I don't think of, of Josh Shapiro in any in any reputable poll. And um, you know, people judged it for what it was. And what, what was what was fascinating after the dust settled, you know, Tuesday night after all the the turn came in, is that you know not only did Josh Shapiro win pretty much a landslide victory for governor over over Mastriano, but um, Democrats recaptured the state house, um, you know, the lower chamber of our two chambers in the, in the state legislature for the first time in over a decade. And I really think, I really think Shapiro's coattails had a lot to do with that, you know, getting people motivated and out to the polls to make sure that this guy didn't become our next governor. 
Yeah, I mean, for a year or almost a year, we've been talking about whether the election that we just had would would be the typical referendum on the party in power in the White House, or whether it would also be a referendum on MAGA madness, right? And it turned out it was a referendum on MAGA madness. And and um, Americans, I mean, I, I, my, I have a lot of takeaways. I was talking about this at the beginning of the show, but my biggest is that Americans aren't as crazy, aren't as mean, aren't as... Um, uh, well, let's say it the, the other way around, that we're better, but we're more committed to the democracy, that we're more decent, we're more tolerant of each other, we're more interested in moving forward together than either side gave us credit for. I think that's a, yeah. I, I'm sort of really happy with that takeaway. Yeah, me too. And, and, and I, I couldn't agree with you more, Edwin. I mean, that's, that, that was my sense too, that, you know, that there's, um, you know, I mean, I mean, dare we call it a silent majority, perhaps, uh, you know, but mm-hmm. there's a majority of people out there who um, you know, want to see want to see more money spent in their kids' schools, not not to see about Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King banned, right? You know, there's more people yeah. there's more people out there who want want uh, secretaries of state and governors who actually count their votes in it you know, have paid attention to that, you know, because every one of those election deniers ran for secretary of state or ran for governor in a state like Pennsylvania that doesn't have, where the, where the governor appoints the secretary of state. Yep. Any, any, anyone who's a major big time election denier who could have influenced the 2024 election in a, in a swing state lost on Tuesday, which is pretty. Well, we, we're not, we're not sure about Kerry Lake yet. But yes, by and large, the ones have been decided. Arizona has an elected, um, Arizona also has an elected Secretary of State. And uh, right. uh, you remember this super crazy Mark Centrum was the, was the uh, candidate yeah. here in Arizona. He, yeah, he you know, went down. Yeah. He lost. I mean, he would have, yep. if he had won, he wanted to uh, relitigate the 2020 election, you know, that Biden won. I, I mean, that's how crazy some of these people were. You know, and, and, but, and voters didn't want that. You know, voters, you know, I mean, I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about how voters wanted reproductive rights. You know, they wanted they wanted choice when it came to their women's bodies. And, and, you know, we saw that in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, I think, is even more pronounced because, you know, we've had this Republican legislature that's been it's been anti-abortion, and if not, mm-hmm. I know he'd been, he would have he would have he would have been in a position to sign legislation that would have banned abortion, that would have gotten to his death. And voters knew this, and I think that drove the strong turnout that we had in Pennsylvania. And the CBS News exit poll of Pennsylvania found abortion was the number one issue over over in, in Pennsylvania over over inflation, thirty percent. Voters named abortion is the number one issue. Yeah, we had, and we had this big surge of registration of, of women and particularly young women uh, in the weeks after the Supreme Court stopped yep. decision. Yep. So, um, you know, so yeah, I think was, I think it was a victory for common sense. You know, I, I think if you look at if you, if you I think if you step back and look at even the bigger picture and look at the last three elections, you know, since 
people got complacent and Donald Trump surprised everybody and became president in 2016. You know, in 2018, we had a big midterm turnout. Uh, again, a lot of the same folks, you had a big young turnout in that election, and they restored a Democratic House. Uh, in, in 2020, you know, not everything went the Democrats' way, but, you know, basically you got this coalition together that voted Trump out of office and elected Joe Biden, uh, and also, uh, you know, gave us the 50-50 for the Democratic Senate in 2020. And then in 2022, the same thing, you know, that, you know, the electorate looks a lot like 2018. Um, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. with Trump not in office. Perhaps the youth turnout was a couple points lower than in, in 2018, uh, but that might have been made up for by, you know, more mature women who were mad about the uh, Supreme Court. So um, you've had three elections now. You know, I, I would call I would call this the one of the better term, and I, I'm, I'm partly floating this with you, Edwin, so I want to see what you think of this. But you know, I, I, I'm seeing this as kind of like the Biden coalition, right? This, this coalition of, you know, people like college-educated voters in, in cities and suburbs, uh, you know, some people some people who used to vote Republican but just think this whole thing's gone off the rails with Trump and, you know, and, 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 the, and the post-Trump people. And, uh, you know, uh, young people who are, look at this and are just horrified, right? You know, and this, this is a coalition. I mean, I, I think... I, I think if you look at those last two election cycles, I think there's a strong argument for Biden's candidacy in 2020. Uh, I, I, I think so, too. I, I, I put it a little differently. Um, um, and, and I'd love to give Biden the credit he deserves. But I, I thought during this incredibly divisive time that we've actually had a great coming together. It's not, you know, I, I, the, the people who are who are reproductive rights are their most important issue are not always the same people where the environment is their most important issue. Not always the same people, uh, right. Who are, are in the, you know, the weeds on these democracy issues and voting rights being the most important issue. But all of these groups were united in their, in their shared repulsion by the, the MAGA groups just broad-based targeting of everybody who isn't them. So I think we've all, well, there's been this massive coming together. And as you say, it's a giant coalition, but it's a, you know, it's really, I mean, you could say it, it it's the Biden coalition, but I, I, I kind of think it's just the people that the MAGA world hates. All of us yeah. together. It's a pretty big world. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, yeah, because you've got, yeah. um, you know, it, it, as, I, as I just wrote my my book after the Ivy Tower Falls, you know about the college non college yep. divide. I mean they they hate they hate college educated people, right? And that's yep. Uh, yep. that's thirty percent of the of the of the public that has bachelor's degrees. Yeah. So you know, they, I got to ask you one other thing. Go back a little bit before we move further on this, because it goes back to something we were saying before about the election deniers. I noticed. That that not all of the election deniers who lost said they lost fraudulently. I I, I think, and I want to give a lot of credit to the losers this election cycle, Democrats, but also Republicans, who who said 
the will of the people is the will of the people. I think this was a cycle that affirmed our ability to run big, free, fair um, elections, that, that Americans know how to do it and count the votes. I, there was, I mean, there's some in Arizona. There's some concerns taking so long to count the votes in Nevada. And there are a few people who are whining. But by and large, th- this isn't the same crazy we had last time. And people who are losing are saying, yep, I'm going to come back next time. Which is which is healthy and good for our democracy. And I mean, even some of these crazy election deniers said, "Yep, I lost." I just think that's a that's a huge win. You know, we thought we thought in Pennsylvania we thought that the odd Fetterman Senate race was going to go on for days, and and that was kind of a shock to see you know Oz up there on on. 1030 or 11 on election night saying, well, I it's over. Yep. I conceded. Yep. He fought a good fight. Well, I think he was <laughs> eager to get back to New Jersey. <laughs> you know, he'd, had, he'd had such a beating. He didn't want another minute. <laughs> yeah, he didn't want it. He didn't want to plane flying, you know, saying it's New Jersey or whatever. Yeah, you, no, you're right. But, but um, yeah, I, I think that's true. You know, I'm, I've seen a couple people online, you know, or, or, or in their columns make that, uh, say that, say that maybe the fever is broken, you know, and I think, I think when you step back and I think there was a lot of concern that election denial and the big lie was, was really baked into our system. And now that we've been through these, these two cycles, right, 2020 and, yep. and then 2020, it seems like more the big lie was, you know, the, the fever of the big lie was like the megalomania of Donald Trump in particular. And in 2022, with, I mean, Trump wasn't on the ballot. And, mm-hmm. of course, Bill is down there in Mar-a-Lago having a meltdown and, and making allegations. But um, it doesn't seem like, you know, if he, you know, if he called for if he called for another January 6th, I don't think that. I don't think the support for that is there. It doesn't. It doesn't. No. Nope. It doesn't look like. No. Nope. You know. Nope. Maybe. I think it helps. Yeah. His most his most rabid supporters, like the leaders of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, that you know they're 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 in jail right now. So maybe right. maybe that has something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Well, yeah. well so what's so, going to happen to the Pennsylvania GOP? You know, it, um, will it return to a more mainstream conservatism or is it still fully, you know, a creature of MAGA rage? It's just hard to say. I mean, there's, um, you know, I, we, we have we have all these people in Pennsylvania, like Tom Ridge, you know, who's the governor in the mm-hmm. and then the yep. Bush administration. And, you know, Charlie Dent is the <laughs> congressman. Uh, the Allentown area until a few years ago, uh, you know, these moderate Republicans, uh, they actually, you know, endorsed Josh Shapiro, the Democrat over Mastriano. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and they absolutely represent a faction in the, in the Republican party, but I just don't think the base, the average person, you know, I mean, you know, we saw, you know, in Doug Mastriano, not only getting the nominations for governor, but, Getting it pretty overwhelmingly, you know, you really, you know, blew out the rest of this. I mean, it was a very yeah. divided field. You had like forty-five percent of the vote, or something like that. 
but nobody else had more than like, you know, 10 or 12 percent. I mean, it was, it was crazy. And these are people, you know, they're rooted in fundamentalist churches, in rural communities. Uh, many of them are, are very online in, in terms of like Facebook and, you know, sh- sharing information on sites like that. Mm-hmm. And um, but I think they've gone away just because Nestoriano lost. I think they're still out there. And, you know, maybe it's hard to say. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I think I think the person who gets you know the next gubernatorial nomination in four years from the Pennsylvania Republicans is going to have to get the votes of that group. Now he may not be. I mean, Massiano was so he may just be a once in a generation, you know, once in a lifetime outlier. You know, because he was, yeah. you know, he was just so extreme on so many levels. But well, I there were think, he had peers across the country this cycle, no question. Yeah, no question. Yeah, I mean, peers yeah. all across the country. I mean, and uh, you know, a couple of them are still in the running. Um, let me ask you about the the your take on the Fetterman debate performance. It was so interesting. You know, so many Democrats said, well, that was a mistake. He shouldn't have done it. He's lost the election now. But of course, he didn't lose the election. And in retrospect, some of the same people are saying, you know, it was the greatest decision he ever made. Going on that debate humanized him. He fully owned the difficult challenge he's going through. And that stopped the Aussian surge. You know, and this is coming from the same pundits. I mean, like, what was your sense? Yeah, I, well, I mean, I, you know, uh, Im- immediately after the debate, and it's funny because, uh, you know, Fox News actually did a online story that took me to task for this because uh, they, they asked all of us at the Inquirer uh, opinion section to rate the debate. And, you know, I, I gave Oz it too because he was such a, you know, one youth oil salesman, basically. And I, I gave Fetterman a six, you know. Um, <laughs> and wasn't, six, six out of ten wasn't even really so much because of his verbal stumble. Well, I guess maybe that was a part of it. But, you know, really, I, I thought actually a couple of his answers were just not the greatest on cracking and stuff. But, but, um, uh, but no, I, you know, I, I you know, I, I and, and people were like, oh, how could you watch that debate and say that Fetterman won, you know, and I mean, I mean, obviously coming from the usual people on the right, but, you know, I think, I think, again, you had the pundit class wanting to look savvy and sophisticated and like, you know, hearing what these conservatives are saying, it's like, oh yeah, people watch that and they were horrified and, and, and it becomes their opinion because they want to, they don't want to look stupid. They don't want to look like a naive geek for the liberals saying, oh, well, you know, Fetterman had some trouble speaking, but, uh, I think he, I think he really won, but you know the truth is that people now that the election is over and people have looked, people look back at the tracking polls, you know the nightly polls of how mm-hmm, after mm-hmm. the debate and he, his support actually went up somewhat after that debate. It didn't, it didn't go down at all. Nobody, people in the general public just did not see it the way the pundits were kind of badgered into seeing it at all. You know people. I mean, I think a couple things. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, some of it was people appreciating these struggles. You know, I mean, you know, Pennsylvania is a state, you know, it's a hardworking state where a lot of people have had health problems and and uh, people, can, you know, in their family and people can relate to that. And, and that's part of it. Although I think also, you know, 
just affects the whole election in general. I think I just think I just think voters are smarter and more sophisticated than pundits give them credit for. You know, it's like it's like people look at this and it's like, well, you know, I you know, I want I want good government policies on health care and you know, I want to see a higher minimum wage and you know, I want to see somebody who actually cares a little bit about the environment and climate change. You know, why why would I why would I vote for Oz over Fetterman just because you know, one, one is able at this at this particular moment in time, one sounds a little bit better in a debate in terms of putting the sentence together. I mean, yeah, that's kind yeah. of like you're you're voting for a senator to represent your interests, and like it's like this guy doesn't represent my interests, but he's just kind of a smooth talker, so I'm going to vote for him. Like who, who thinks like that? No, you know, nobody does. You know, so so I think people were very smart and sophisticated about. Yeah choices were in the election. And uh, yeah, so, and, and you're right, I think Fetterman did, if anything, he got rewarded by a couple of points by people who, who admired him for going out there. You know, I think. Yeah, it was brave. Election. No question. Yeah. It was brave. All right. So, so Republicans weren't the only, you know, I want to call them big losers because they did so, they so underperformed what um, everybody expected them to do. Political journalism had a pretty epic fail too. And, I, I know journalists love talking about journalism. I just don't think it's that complicated. Can't? Why is it that we don't see more reporting on people and less on polls? Is it just too hard to do? You know, I, I think um, I don't know. If you, I don't know if you, if you or your listeners have ever read the, the media critic Jay Rosen, he's a professor at NYU, but mm-hmm. he's criticizing some of these tendencies of the media to do horse race coverage, you know, you've been out there for like 20 or 25 years making the critique. And he, he talks a lot about, and, and as, as somebody who's been a political person myself, I think this is dead on. He talks about the desire to be savvy, you know, that, that political journalists, journalists are so afraid that they'll look naive or that they're in the tank, they you know. And I, I think this, I think in this post-Trump era, you know, Trump was such a challenge to the entire system, and it was a challenge to journalism. You know, how do we cover this guy? He tells dozens of lies. You know, every time he stands up at the podium. You know, and I think I think journalists did a mixed bag of covering Trump. I mean, there was certainly some effort to catalog his dishonesty, but it could have been better. You know, but but I think I think coming out of Trump, you saw this whiplash of like political journalists saying now that now that Trump is gone and Biden's president. I don't want to embarrass myself by looking like I'm cheerleading for Biden, you know, that I'm like in the tank for this guy. And so there's this relentless, relentless search to, you know, come up with the most negative take on his presidency, I think. And, uh, you know, um, you know, when, when you saw some inevitable stumbling in his approval rating, you know, when gas prices hit $5 and, and uh, you know a few other things happened that weren't even necessarily Biden's Biden's control. You know a lot of political journalists were like, "Aha!" You know, and you know, and and, and also, you know, generals always fight the last war, right? You know, I mean, I mean, we've seen a couple of midterms where where the where particularly Democratic presidents, I think, have been punished. You know, in their first midterm, and I, I think I think I think in 2010, people were like. Well, maybe it won't be so bad for Obama, and, and you know, and, and he was, what was the word Obama used? It was a slapping, right? In, in 2010, mm-hmm. 
And so it's mm-hmm. like, there's this, in, there's this crazy instinct, you know, it's like, I don't want to get on the wrong side of the shellacking that is probably coming, you know? And there was no shellacking. And that's because a couple of things, I mean, you know, they didn't, you know, they, they looked at a lot of polls that were, frankly, you know, the, the Republicans just dumped a lot of bad polls out there to kind of muddle, muddle the system. And like you said, why were they even looking at these in the first place? Why? You know, I, I mean, well, I think Donald, Donald Trump's first victory over Hillary Clinton was partly because the reporters didn't spend time out in America and understand what was going on. I mean, I mean, Hillary's campaign didn't either, in fairness. But yeah. if you really did, if people really did go out and, and understand America better, we would have had, I think, a resp- the Democrats would have responded to it differently and um, uh, we wouldn't have had the last few years we've had. It, there's just this, this, it's a lot easier to read up if somebody make a bunch of phone calls and then think you can report on America, which seems yeah, I mean, absolute. <laughs> We're a big, yeah. complicated country filled with complicated people. Well, you know, I mean, some of the reporters sat back and they looked at the polling numbers, right? And the poll said, Voters say the number one issue is inflation. And it's like, oh, my God, this is terrible. And these voters who are mad about inflation are going to kill them. Well, you know, we, at the Philadelphia Inquirer, where I work, you know, we had, we had a couple of reporters go to polling places, and they asked voters about inflation. And a lot of them said, yeah, it's bad. You know, I can't believe how high the prices are out there. And it's like, well, who are you voting for? And he said, well, I'm voting for the Democrats, you know, because – Either, you know, I think they have a better policy to deal with it. Uh, you know, there's one voter they talked to who said, yeah, I mean, you know, these gas prices are such a ripoff. I blame the oil companies. They're the ones profiteering, you know, and that's smart, you know. I mean, that's, you know. And, right. You know, Giving the rich more tax cuts is not going to fix inflation. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously there are other voters out there who see it differently. You're going to blame the government yep. or whatever. But, but, the, but the, you know, if, if like 30% of the voters are saying inflation is number, the number one issue, maybe 15, you know, maybe 15 of that 30 points is, is people blaming Biden. And maybe 15 mm-hmm. people blame the oil companies or corporate greed or, you yep. know, who yep. think that, think that the Republicans would make it worse, you know, which, which they would if they had gotten power. So, so, um, so, so people, I mean, I mean, this has been the theme for everything we've been talking about the last half hour, I think. You know, it's just voters, voters are smarter than the pundits and other people give them credit for. Yeah. Well, I, let's leave politics aside in for the couple minutes we have left and just talk about government. Now the Democrats are responsible for the government in Pennsylvania, um, which I'm thrilled about. But now they have to deliver. They have to make life better for the people in the state. What do you think are the top agenda items? What, what's going what, what would you, what, what, you know, looking back in a couple of years, you want to say they got done? Yeah, well, I mean, one, one obvious thing is that Pennsylvania is a state that, that has not increased our state minimum wage. So that, that federal, that crazy federal 725 minimum wage, that's the mm-hmm. minimum wage in Pennsylvania. So, so to me, that's the biggest no, no-brainer that you could do that could help people. And you know, with you know, with with a Democratic state house, just barely, obviously, but and maybe 
maybe winning over a couple of Republican senators, um, uh, that could be doable. You know, um, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, I mean, the, the Republican legislature is blocked, you know, blocked any kind of legislation that's pro-worker, that, you know, is raising corporate power, whether it's bracketing or whether it's, you know, corporate taxes or, or, or whatever. So, you know, there's, there's a lot that could be done. I mean, you know, I mean, the thing is, Josh Shapiro is very much kind of a, he's a very centrist Democrat. And so he, you know, he's not going to push, a, he's not going to promote a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren type. No, that's right. But, but as Richard J. Daley, a, a Democrat of great renown in Chicago and definitely not a liberal reformer, <laughs> he used yeah. to say, good government is good politics. You know, if you, if you just, for a good chunk of local government, it's just do the job. Make sure the schools work. Make sure the infrastructure's built. Make sure that people get a fair shot. And even if they don't do much more than that, if they do that well, people tend to notice. Yeah, I mean, people people really want their schools. Pennsylvania, yeah. we've got a we've got a court case before the Supreme Court about our unequal and inadequate funding system, and mm-hmm. given the given the actually pro you know democratic majority makeup of the court, you know, people have their fingers crossed that we get a good ruling out that you know if if heaven forbid Doug Mastriano has become the governor. He would not be implemented. Wouldn't, wouldn't matter, right. Yeah. All right, well, well that's got to be the last word. As always, pleasure talking to you, and um, we will do so again. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for having me on. It was, it was, great. It was great to be back. You bet. Enjoy the rest of your Saturday. Thank you. Yeah. All right, folks, we're going to take a break, uh, and when we come back, the economist Dean Baker will be on and we will uh, continue this talk about inflation and other interesting topics. Stay with me. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, it's uh, a little after 2.30 here in the upper Midwest, and I'm joined by Dean Baker, founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Um, it's an organization that... Um, develops, promotes, shares ideas uh, sort of on the democratic side of social issues that affect people's lives. Dean, welcome back. It's great to talk to you again. Edwin, thanks a lot for having me on. I have a a whole bunch of topics. Um, Voters said they cared a lot about inflation, but it turns out they weren't convinced either by the media, which I think tries to convince them of this, uh, or Republicans, that the that the GOP has the answer to the problem. Uh, did you even hear them offer an answer during the campaign? No, they really didn't. I mean, the things that they were saying, okay, we're going to cut taxes, that's not going to stop inflation. Um, they would yell about drilling and, you know, better or worse, Biden's actually encouraged drilling, drilling, drilling for oil and gas, just to be clear. Um, yep. It's way up. Um, again, we all recognize the problem with that, but that they didn't, there wasn't anything in their bag of tricks that even could plausibly offer a, a fix to inflation. So, yeah, I don't think people were, were convinced that they had the answer. The other part, and you may have seen Paul Krugman in a piece, I never know, I read things online, so I'm not sure is it there 
Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Anyhow, he made a point um, that, you know, kind of same thing. I, Krugman and I seem to think a lot alike these days. But people hear all the time that inflation is the big issue. And you don't want it to sound stupid. I, I, I don't mean to say people are sort of, you know, oh, you tell me what I should think. But you hear this all the time, inflation, inflation, inflation. You hear it all the time in the media. I write a blog, beat the press. I follow media reporting on economic issues very closely. And they've been saying that all the time. So it's not surprising that when people are asked by pollsters, well, what's the big issue? Well, they've been told it's inflation. They hear it all the time. So it must be inflation. Because, you know, the point that, you know, I've made, he's made, uh, he being Krugman, um, most people's wages have actually done pretty well. That doesn't mean everyone's kept up with inflation. Of course, they haven't. But a lot of people have kept up in, with inflation, particularly those at the bottom. Those more towards the middle, their wages might be falling a little behind inflation. But we're only mm-hmm. talking about half mm-hmm. a point to point. That's not that unusual. And many of these people are homeowners. And yep. if you're a homeowner, there's a very good chance you refinanced a mortgage in the last two or three years. You could be saving 2500 3000 a year in interest. So, yeah, you're paying more at the gas station for to fill up your car. You pay more for a loaf of bread. But if you have 3000 in your pocket from paying less interest on your mortgage, you're still way ahead. So uh, um, let's talk about the strategies that have been used. We, you and I haven't had a chance to have this conversation, but I've been worried. And, again, I'm not an economist, so if I'm completely wrong, let's – this is a good time to educate me. But I've been worried that the um, focus on interest rate hikes by the Fed as a strategy just feels counterproductive to me. I mean, that, that I think, drives up rents. It drives up uh, mortgages for those who didn't refinance. Um, and it addresses the, the, the smaller part of the problem, I think, which was supply not the bottlenecks in uh, that, that have, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, it addresses the demand side, but the supply yeah. problems, I think, are big, bigger cause. Am I crazy? Yeah, I, I, no, no, I think that's largely right. I mean, the, the Fed raises rates because that's the tool it has. So it has responsibility for slowing inflation. What's its tool? You raise rates. What does that do? Well, you know, as simply as possible, it throws people out of work. The the idea, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm being a little cruder than if we had Jerome Powell on the line, but if you basically agree with the story, the idea is that, okay, we're going to have higher unemployment, weaken workers' bargaining power, workers will take lower pay increases, and that will fix inflation. Well, you, you could get, you know, just think of it this way, that we have, you know, we're, we're getting demand from, we're, we're getting price pressure from whatever source. And if we could force, you know, somehow make energy prices 20% less, that'd be great for inflation. If we can make food prices 20, you know, we don't, the Fed doesn't have any way to do those things. What the Fed can do is make it so workers take less money and that will reduce inflationary pressure. So, so that's what they Boy, can do. But the real source of it. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. It, it's, and of course it hits, you know, we know this, we've done research, I and others have done research on this. It hits workers at the bottom hardest because the ones who are most likely to lose their jobs are people yep, in, yep, you know, less, yep. less lower paying jobs. And, you know, so it's both those workers lose their jobs, but also they're the ones that have their jobs have to take pay cuts. So it's, it's not a good way to deal with it, but that is the tool the Fed has. And yeah, but the government and itself has other tools, doesn't it? I mean, we can we can address the monopolies that that we've allowed to form, 
right? So the competition can help lower prices. Those are things that I thought the government had the tools to use. Well, they can. They tend not to be that that short term. I mean, Biden has done some things. I mean, we were talking a moment ago about oil. Well, he's released mm-hmm. oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserves. That's helped to bring mm-hmm. down oil and gas prices. So that's mm-hmm. that's one thing you could do in the short term. You can the the federal government does have some control. It can do more to try and lower drug prices. Again, it's a big expense for a lot of people, and that's in mm-hmm. the Inflation Reduction Act. But we don't see most of that till next year. So right. I mean, that's not right. too far down the road. But that's not now. So, you know, and then you do have, you know, you're mentioning antitrust. That is an issue. And, you know, Biden's, uh, he's appointed people to to the Federal Trade Commission um, that are taking antitrust seriously. It's been neglected really by both parties for four decades. And I think they are taking it seriously. And I think that can help bring prices down. But, again, that's not this month or next month, you know, even in a best. No, right. It's a longer longer term. Yeah. 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 So let me ask you about the blame that. You know, the Republicans said, well, the Democrats just pumped too much money into the system. Their COVID relief, the American Rescue Plan is entirely to blame because it pumped so much money into the economy and people are sitting on too much wealth. They have too much, you know, there's too much unspent money out there driving up demand. I'm thinking, wait a minute. When Trump was president, he cut a bunch of taxes giving people who had a lot of money a whole lot more to pump up demand. They went on a government spending spree that, right? So, so there's plenty of money coming to the system that way. And I think both parties gave us quantitative easing who benefited from all of that. And was that inflationary? Well, quantitative easing helped to boost demand, and I, I think it was the right policy in the context of the, the yep. pandemic. It, you want to support the economy through the pandemic. I think, yep. you know, a lot of this, and I've had a lot of arguments with people on the other side, you know, people like Jason Furman, who was, you know, in the Obama and Clinton administrations, for that matter, but he's been one of the big uh, inflation uh, hawks, if you like. And we don't hugely disagree in the sense that, I would agree that the, the the rescue plan, and you're right, this started with, with the CARES Act when Trump was in the White House. So, you know, if we want to assign blame for this, they both share the blame in that sense. I mean, obviously, uh, Biden came through with more after he took came in the White House, but there are big packages under Trump as well. But in any case, that surely had some boost to inflation. But what are we talking about? Probably one to two percentage points. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the big part of the story, because, you know, we hear this all the time, I believe it to be true, the inflation that hits people the most is what they see every day, what they see in food prices, what they see in gas prices. That's that's what they see, you know, every day. They fill up their car, they got yep. their, yep. buy their groceries. Well, that was very, very minimally affected by, by the recovery package. And we know that because mm-hmm. we can look to Europe. The, the inflation rates in, you know, the, the United Kingdom and uh, go France, Germany, the, it's, it's the same or even a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, I've been around the block with people and they go, oh, well, that's because of food and energy. And go, that's right. And that's exactly what people uh, are most upset about. Right. So, that's so, so interesting. Yeah, the blame story doesn't make sense. Um, a couple of my last year, I visited Newport, Rhode Island. The, the time I had been there before was in the mid-1970s. On that first trip, you know, I saw the aging palaces of the Gilded Age, you know. Um, more recently, I saw those old relics had facelifts, and they were owned by folks like Jeff Bezos. And it scared me to death that we're going back into that era. 
And I'm, I, I wonder so much about the damage of the concentration of wealth and power. And, and we have guys like Elon Musk, guys who are flying themselves into space, but they're also buying up companies like Twitter as vanity projects and doing real harm to investors and consumers alike. What is that? Are we stuck with that? Well, I am very concerned about the inequality, the growing inequality that we're seeing now. For better or worse, I think uh, Musk is doing a lot to reduce inequality because uh, he spent what forty four billion on Twitter, and looks like it's going down fast. But um, you know that, that's probably not the best way to, to to reduce inequality. But yeah, I mean it's it, it is uh, when we see a run up in house prices, um, that is in part because you have very wealthy people who could buy up places that, uh, you know, I, I can't speak to Newport, Rhode Island specifically, but what surprised me, a lot of these places had been divided up as four or five, six unit places uh, that could house a lot of people, in other words, and now they're one person. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, of course, many of these people, I, I, again, I don't know exactly what Bezos owns, but a lot of these people own two, three, four homes. And obviously, they, in a context where we have a housing shortage, that's an issue. So, so that is a problem, and and I should get to something. You know, I don't know if you had intent to touch on it, but um, when you have someone like Musk, who's obviously incredibly wealthy, and he could just buy up uh, Twitter on a whim, well, he's imposing his politics on Twitter. He may not like that. He might not like someone like me saying that, but that is what he's doing. You know, he got it because he said, "Oh, there's censorship and this and that." Well, I've been on Twitter. I like it. I like it a lot. But, you know, is there censorship? Well, you know, if you start calling uh, people, you know, names, if you're using derogatory language, use the N-word, yeah, you'll be removed. And to my view, that's a good thing. Is that censorship? It's a private platform. But when the private platforms are owned by rich people like, like Musk, who could do whatever he feels like, well, he's going he's gonna to shape what, uh, what, what we're able to see on Twitter. And, I mean, that's not altogether a new story because who owns the media? I mean, uh, we we have examples like Murdoch with Fox, who's very openly uh, using it for his political ends, advancing his political agenda. But it, it just stands to reason that if you have a wealthy person uh, owning a company, that they're likely to have their politics affected. Uh, Bezos talked about a moment ago, he owns the Washington Post. Now, as far as I could tell, he's actually been pretty hands-off. But would he still be hands-off if they start to write a lot of things about how Amazon's going down the tubes or whatever? I don't know. Maybe he would be, but uh, you have to worry about that. Well, and and there are traditional guardrails in traditional journalism that protect from overreach of the publishers and owners, um, but to not so much on Twitter and Elon Musk's freewheeling days, I think they cost Eli Lilly a billion dollars in market cap this week when when he allowed on his site some some fake Eli Lilly account to say, hey, we're giving away insulin for free now. I mean, that, that that's a real impact. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't think he knows what he's doing with Twitter. I, I, I've had, I remember I, he, he tweeted he was justifying, I, I assume you've heard he laid off half his staff, and he was justifying that. He goes, well, I don't like to do layoffs, but when you're losing $4 million a day, what else could you do? So I was going, oh, you paid $44 billion for a company that's losing $4 million a day. What would you pay really for smart. a company that's losing $8 million? 
And so all these all these Musk uh, aficionados were, were trashing me for this. Like, oh, he's brilliant. He's you know he's the richest man in the world, and obviously he's the richest man. Well, he world. was. I don't know if he still is, but but you know that doesn't mean he necessarily knows what he's doing. And I think it's pretty clear because I mean, among other things, after he lays off half his staff, he suddenly found out he needs a lot of these people, and and. Again, I mean, just uh, I don't know anyone who works at Twitter, but, you know, suppose you'd get in your, as I understand, just send people an email saying you're, you're laid mm-hmm. off, or you're fired, you know, and then you hear back from him two days later. Oh, we actually need you. Well, I suspect a lot of those people are telling him to go to hell. You know, they're, they're not going to come back. A guy, a guy who just fired him with an email and now he well, says he needs him. There are also some, I mean, still in America, there are some laws about how you lay people off. And you can't just, you know, people of a certain size, you need the notice and everything else. You can't really just say, go to the door for no cause. Well, he said he was giving them severance pay 30 days. It was 30 days, whatever, some period of severance pay that would toll that, that would meet that requirement. But again, I, that's what he says. I'm not in a position to verify that. What happens if he has to sell? his Tesla stock, a lot of it, in order to make up this enormous, you know, 44 million to 4 million or whatever it is. It's a huge drop. Do the Tesla shareholders then sue him? No, they wouldn't be able to sue him. I mean, it's very hard to sue management for for being poorly run. But you, you, you are raising a very interesting, important point that you think about this for a moment. First, Tesla stock has fallen a lot. How much of that's due to Musk? Playing around with Twitter, I have no idea, but it's falling down. I'd have, we'd have to check something like twenty-five or thirty percent since its peaks last year. So a lot of stocks down, though a lot of tech stocks down. So that again, I, I, I mm-hmm. couldn't say it's because of. But if you just look as a practical matter, ostensibly Tesla is very highly valued because the market thinks that Elon Musk is a, a great manager, super manager, and he's able to to produce good cars in a way that GM and Ford and others haven't been able to to date. And whether or not that's true, I mean, that's clearly the market's assessment. Now, if Musk is spending all his time on Twitter, then presumably he's not also running Tesla. Um, Now, he may have some very good people there who are actually doing as good or better job in his absence. But if the reason you thought Tesla was a valuable company was Elon Musk is a brilliant manager and he's really uh, moving it to the next level, he's not there. He's he's running Twitter. I could tell you because I get his tweets all the time. So hmm. so I think Tesla shareholders would have reason to to be concerned. Right, let, let's leave the rich guys aside for a second and just talk about um, you know the rest of us. I think Biden has been a pretty good steward of the economy and tried um, things that we haven't tried in a long time. But what what will what actions can uh, can the government take, not just the federal government, but maybe the state governments too, I, and that may just be minimum wage, I don't know, but to, they begin to address this, this high-velocity um, separation of the super-rich from everybody else so that there is a more um, – so that Americans perceive the economic system as more fair. Yeah. Well, there's a long list. Let me just throw in a a plug for Biden. I I think he really has done an outstanding job in the sense that we've had a massive disruption with the pandemic, a global pandemic, and then the war in Ukraine on top of that. And the idea that you would go through that 
and not suffer any pain, uh, it's really kind of, you know, fantasy. So the fact that, yeah, you know, we all would like inflation to be lower, but in the scheme of things, we, we really have come through this remarkably well. And I, uh, the election's over, so I'm not, not saying that I want people to vote Democratic. You know, whatever. That's over for two years. But, you know, so, so anyhow. But, yeah, we have this longer-standing problem, upward redistribution. Well, there's a lot of factors. Um, one of the things that I've emphasized a lot is is patent copyright monopolies. And the government – those are government policies. I don't know how many times mm-hmm. I talk to mm-hmm. people, economists people, and they look at me like, what, what are you talking about? I go, we set the rules. We can make them longer. We can make them shorter. We can make them weaker. We could have public funding that doesn't. And, and Moderna is my poster child here now because uh, we have five Moderna billionaires, or at least we did as of last summer. I don't know their current wealth status. But how did they get to be billionaires? We paid Moderna to develop a vaccine. We gave them $450 million to do the research, develop a vaccine. Then we paid them another $450 million to, to test it, do large-scale clinical testing. And then we gave them control over it. Now, suppose we had said, okay, we're willing to pay for it, but we don't get to pay once. You don't get your patent monopoly. You don't get intellectual property in, in the vaccine that the government paid for. And, and Ostensibly, again, I, I mean, if I understand this, we pay, we pay for these things so that they don't have to risk their capital. We take the risk out of the equation. And isn't the idea that the reward comes from taking the risk? And if you're not taking the risk, why do you get the reward? Exactly. And it's, it's, to my mind, it was just, I mean, this was done under Trump, but it, it, it was never a big issue. And I just like, I don't, I don't understand that. I mean, again, they suppose that it had turned out badly. Suppose they had spent the first 450 million of us really doesn't work. Or maybe they went through the clinical testing. I mean, that would be bad news for all of us, but Moderna would just go, Oh, well you paid us. <laughs> they didn't lose anything. They didn't get the huge profits they might've hoped to get later, but they wouldn't have been out anything They had their costs covered and then some. So, yeah, so we could do that more generally because the the vaccines, again, the government picked up the tab. In most cases, they aren't still, but they were paying Moderna $20 a shot. And Moderna, if these were just generics, you know, they just manufacture it. Obviously, there's costs involved in manufacturing and distribute it. It would be $1.50, maybe $2. We'd be able to give these to the whole world. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and that's true more generally with prescription drugs. And again, very few people appreciate how much is, is at stake with prescription drugs. We'll spend about $525 billion this year on prescription drugs. If we snapped our fingers, got rid of patents, and there's other types of protection not worth going into. But we, we just said, okay, it's a free market. Anyone can produce any of these drugs subject to safety standards, but any, no, no intellectual property rights. We'd be paying less than $100 billion a year. So that difference, $425 billion, that comes to about $4,000 for every family in the country. That's an incredible amount of money. And that's coming from the rest of us. A lot of it's paid by the government, paid by insurers in many cases. But that's coming one way or another out of our pockets. And where does it go? Well, like the Moderna billionaires. You're getting some people very, very wealthy from this. So that's, you know, I think a really good place to start. I mean, I have a longer list, but I mean, that's a really good place to start if we want to reduce inequality. Just let's talk about the counter argument, the one that says these intellectual property laws allow private capital to be used in, you know, to be, to be put to the great risk 
uh, and taken out of other more productive uses for the long time it takes to develop new drugs. That's the counter argument, right? Yeah, right, right. And and the drug companies do spend money on research, no doubt about it. But my idea is we could replace that. We already spend over $50 billion a year in biomedical research, primarily through the National Institutes of Health, but other agencies mm-hmm. as well. So let's double that, triple that. And we we don't need the private industry. I mean, I would tell them, go ahead and do it if you want. You know, you want to, if, if, if Pfizer or Merck or whoever, they want to invest their money, go ahead and do it. You know, we're not going to rescue for it. You could still get your patent. The only problem might be that when you finally get your drug, that it's going to turn out it's competing against the generic that sells for 1% as much and is every bit as good. So if you want to take that risk, you think you're so brilliant, go ahead. But this is going to be the, the, the that's going to be the ball game. Okay, so patent uh, issues, patent and other IP issues are high on your list. Um, yeah. Give me just two more if you can. Okay, corporate governance, uh, incredible cesspool. In principle, the the corporate boards are supposed to be putting a check on CEO pay. They don't. There've been there, there was a great article just done a couple of years ago at uh, people at University of Texas, and they asked them a simple thing. They did a survey of directors. What do you see as your responsibilities? The vast majority didn't even see it as part of their job description to to put a lid on CEO pay. So as a result of that, we get CEOs getting paid twenty, thirty, forty million. Yep. They you could you could pay someone much less and have them do just as good. I'm just talking about not are they good people, are they good for the planet? I just mean returns to shareholders. And yep. it's not just the CEO. If they're getting 20 or 30 million, the chief financial officer is getting 10 or 15. The third yep. echelon are getting two or 3 million. Suppose we're back where we world where we were 50 years ago, the CEO would get two or 3 million. It would be a very, very different world. So I'd say change the rules of corporate governance to make it easier to put a check on CEO pay. And, yep. you know, again, rules of corporate governance are written by the government. That's uh, corporations are government entities. They don't exist they without government. government. But apparently they're people. <laughs> they're people. Yeah. 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 Well, that, that's, uh, you know, they're legal entities. A third one I'll just mention quickly. We have uh, financing in the news with uh, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin exchange going under um, yep. We need to rein in finance. It's, it's an incredible bloat, incredible drain on the economy, and it creates an enormous amount of inequality. Um, it's, it, this is really a simple proposition that I think most economists, if we sat down and asked them, they'd agree that we want the finance, financial sector to be as small as possible because it's, it's, a drain. it's like trucking. If trucking, we have, we have roughly a million people driving trucks. Suppose we had five million. You know, anyone would go, well, what's wrong? Why do you need five times? And if you could say, oh, well, we're getting all the stuff, you know, we get the food from point A to point B much quicker. If you could show that, then fine. But odds are you can't. In the case of the financial sector, it's quintupled relative to the size of the economy over the last four decades. What is it doing better? I think you'd be hard-pressed to identify it. Again, the, the whole reason for the turn to this explosion in finance, I guess, starting in the 80s, was we'd be better off with a really efficient use of capital. But your point is, this is not efficient use of capital. It's not making capital move more efficiently in our system. That's right. And again, you know, you'd really be hard pressed to go, okay, we're, what, what sector has gotten capital because we have this huge financial sector that if we're in the world of 40 or 50 years ago would not have gotten capital? I don't think you could make a case there. 
Dean, as always, it's really interesting talking to you. And um, uh, I have about 18 other questions on my list, but um, we're not going to get to them today. We'll save it for next time. All right. Thank you so much, everybody. That was Dean Baker from the founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And, you know, obviously, uh, public enemy number one for the pharma industry, because you know what? He wants to actually hold them accountable for all the money we give them. Um, really interesting stuff. We're going to take a break for the top of the news. We're going to come back and we're going to talk to Victoria Bassetti from States United Action. This is uh, going to be really interesting about the election deniers and what we can expect going forward. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, this is, of course, the hour where I take your calls at 773-639-278. So get ready. But before that, I'm going to talk with Victoria Bassetti, who is a senior advisor to States United Action. And we've talked before. She's an election law expert, an experienced attorney, an author. She's been a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law. And, you know, from time to time when we talk, it's about the health of our democracy. Victoria, welcome back. It's great to be back. Well, you spent a good chunk of last year identifying and sharing information about the effort to place election deniers in positions of responsibility over elections themselves. I think you called it a lot of things. I loved replacing the refs, which was uh, one of the ways you helped us all learn about that. I think that work paid off this past week. Yeah, I think that, uh, that you know, voters really took note of it and and uh, and realized that um, they they weren't really receptive to the idea of, of voting for people who uh, were going to upfront harm our democracy. Um, after this election, we you know before the election, sorry, we had identified almost a hundred races for statewide office, things like governors, attorneys general, or secretary of states, where you know election deniers were running for those office and. As of this moment, um, out of those 94 races, only 14 election deniers have won. So that's that's pretty that's a pretty bad batting average for an election denier. It was frightening to see that many people running for the office, but it's really heartening to see that at the end of the day, the voters decided that they were just not the right people to be holding those important positions. I, I could not agree with you more, and I think it wouldn't have happened. They would not have all. They would not have lost in such numbers were it not for the work that you, your organization has done, and many others to bring this this um, attack on our democracy to light. But still, they have 14 more people in positions of authority than they had a few weeks ago, or they're about to have 14 more. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say that of those 14 people who won, a few of them were incumbents, you know, like the Secretary of State yep. of Alabama, who, who won who yep. won re-election. Um, but, but, but you're right, the job is not done um, just because, you know, this it happens this go-round. That doesn't mean that there are not going to be a lot of other elections coming up even next year where, you know, county commissioners are going to be up for election or in 2024 when the, the amount of pressure on our election system is going to be is, is going to be really huge. So the good news is I think that 
people understand the stakes now. We have a way of understanding or beginning of a way of understanding, you know, kind of what it means to actually value our democracy. We have a way of, of assessing them, of asking them the questions. And we now know voters care. Um, but it's, you know, you're right. It's not done. Voters stepped up to defend democracy um, on Tuesday. They've got to keep stepping up for years to come, probably. You know, kind of what drove all of this isn't going to just go away in, in you know, one election. Nope, it sure isn't. So, so um, but one election was really important. I think <laughs> I've said this a few times today, but it's worth saying again. Americans really do know how to run large, free, and fair elections. And and I was so cheered by the losers. I think the losers were as much heroes as the winners this election cycle, Democrats and Republicans who said, yep, I lost. You know, the, the voters have spoken, and, and I, you know, I wish it was a different result, but it's up to you guys. And they walked off stage. I mean, Dr. Oz, he went back to New Jersey. He didn't say this was a fake. You know, I, like that really helps us, I think. I, I think you're right. The gracious concession speech is back, um, you know, uh, and, and I think that that's, as, as you pointed out, really an incredibly important part of the way our democracy works, which is um, to kind of accept the, the results, accept the will of the voters and do it um, kind of graciously. And, of course, come back to fight another day, you know, but but fight over ideas. Um, you know, fight over who's the best person. Don't don't fight over whether or not, you know, our democracy and the voters votes should actually count. I mean, even some of the election deniers lost and and said so. And I, I just yeah, I, it was a it, that was stunning to me. I didn't expect and say, say, oh, these elections aren't fair. This election was once again run. You know, we, we, we worried about uh there's going to be intimidation at the polling booths. There's going to be, mm-hmm. there's going to be, there's going to be, you know what? Nope. We know how to run elections. And I think if there were people who wanted to come into the polling booths and intimidate their fellow citizens, they were scared to death because Americans want to run free and fair elections. You're right. Actually, this election that just happened is really a, a testimony to a bunch of things. One of them is the incredible seriousness and methodical approach that tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of professional election administrators uh, took to this. They were preparing for this election months in advance. They were doing scenario planning. They were thinking through all of the twists and turns and problems that could have occurred. They were thinking out everything that they possibly could to make sure that it ran as smoothly and as efficiently and as fairly as possible. And, you know, look, of course, there were mistakes when you have got 10,000 election districts, millions of voters coming out in one day, um, you know, new people running the jobs for, you know, do, being election administrators for the first time. There, there are going to be hiccups and mistakes, but but there weren't a lot of them. And it's really no, we ran out of I paper think, in one place. They got more paper. But for a while, they didn't yeah. have it. So we had to wait. Stuff it, happens. It, That's right. It, yeah, exactly. And, you know, now 
Um, you know, the vote count continues, and I know there are a lot of people who are complaining about how long it's taking for the vote to count. But I think rather than complaining, we ought to be congratulating all of the election officials for, you know, methodically making sure that every vote is counted and that every legal vote is counted. They're being incredibly careful. Like, I mean, I don't know about you, but I I actually every once in a while, you know, dip into uh, the cameras, the live camera feeds of vote counting that's going on. And oh, you, know, you wow. can literally you can you can literally watch I think something like fifteen different cameras in Maricopa County, Arizona right now and see every single thing that's happening there. And it's just it's absolutely amazing. You know, uh it's 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 a it's a beautiful thing. And you know, you mentioned voter intimidation. I'll say that a lot of people were really worried about that before the election because there were a lot of people making noise, acting Mm -hmm. like they were going to go and conduct voter intimidation. And there was a little, you know, uh, your your readers may know about some stuff that happened in Arizona, but um, but a judge heard the evidence and ended up, you know, stopping them from doing it. Uh, There were a few other little bits and bobs hereabout, but. Everyone took it really seriously, police, election administrators, and the voters themselves. Um, and I think that, you know, thank God, a lot of our fears weren't really realized. And, um, and, and that's, that's great, but it's also, I'm really glad that we, we prepped for it as well as yep. we did. So, yeah. so uh, given, right, that we, we agree this went really well, and most people, including a lot of election deniers, owned up to the fact that it was a fine election and they may not, they may not have won. And, and that uh, the, the citizens had the seriousness and the, um, and the sense of the sovereigns they are to do their job. But not everybody, mm-hmm. right? So, so you talked about those cameras that, that you're watching. Boy, you're hardcore. Those cameras that are watching the folks <laughs> who are counting. But, you know, Tucker Carlson finds those and finds an image of somebody doing what they're supposed to do and puts it on TV and says, you know what, this happened in, in Pennsylvania. And actually it didn't. And, and then tells people there's still fraud. So, yeah. I, yeah, you, is it time that we track the pundits and not just the polls who contribute to this problem? Yeah, I was going to say there's a guy in Florida who seems to be also uh, making a big stink about um, about fraud right now. Um, yep, there's uh, a guy in Florida doing I, that. <laughs> um, well, and Lindsey Graham. I mean, Lindsey Graham yeah. said Thursday, there's no mathematical way if Laxalt loses. If he does, then it's a lie. That's his quote. And of course, there is a mathematical way Laxalt could lose. He might lose. And there's no evidence of fraud. And there's plenty of evidence that they're doing everything right. And bet- better yet, Laxalt himself has, you know, kind of been open and transparent about it and has, you know, kind of indicated that he thinks that the window is narrowing. I think I think at the end of the day, uh, Laxalt himself is going to be the person who who concedes graciously if if if, if that's how it ends up. I mean, they're still counting. So we don't know. You know, don't want to. But I want to give him credit for that. I heard that, too. And it's and it's given the way he campaigned. That surprised me. And, I, and I'm thinking, yeah. like, why are people who campaigning that the election's a fraud getting up there and saying it, it wasn't a fraud? This is just the way things happen. I mean, it, it, the whole lie is getting peeled back a little bit in some way. I think 
maybe, you know, at the end of the day, it's easy to lie about this sort of thing when you're trying to signal support for Trump himself, for that that guy in Florida. It's really hard to lie when it's up close and personal and you know it for yourself. You know, um, and I think that that's one of the reasons why uh, so many of the election deniers have conceded um, graciously. Um, you know, they might have been they might have been lying to signal support, but at the end of the day, they they know in their district or in their state that the election was run well, and mm-hmm. so they they you know they have to do that. That that doesn't mean, as you pointed out, that there aren't a lot of people who are still spinning these issues up, that there aren't a lot of voters who believe that they're serious, uh, that, that there are serious concerns. Um, yeah. Like I said, this is an ongoing, this is an ongoing fight. It's as much an educational fight as it is anything else. You know, voters need to understand that counting votes accurately and slowly is better than quickly and inaccurately. And making it up. Uh, but, yeah. 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 So you, yeah, you, I would say the other thing, you know, it's oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, I also think that we came much closer than people want to think to really wrecking the democracy. And I think some of the people who were yucking it up and saying these things to do the identity politics stuff with Donald Trump were terrified. And I, this is their way of backing off because we came too close. I think also because it's really clear that election denial is not popular with the voters themselves and the candidates are taking note. Um, It's not just that they got afraid. It's that they realized that the voters weren't going to stand for it. And so they're walking it back. Um, You know, so I think that's at at the end of the day, I, I credit the change in tone, not to these people themselves, but to the voters and the power that they demonstrated in the way they voted on Tuesday. Yeah, voting is a really, it does have a, a mystical power, but if you're right, then we're going to see changes in in the way the right approaches reproductive choice too, because where anybody had a chance to vote on that issue, whether it was Kentucky or Kansas or anywhere else, they said, you know, we don't really like the Supreme Court telling women what they're supposed to do on this issue. And I I don't see the evidence that the will of the voters is changing uh, uh, their minds on that issue. I I think that is just a really fascinating question. And I'm going to be watching. I think everyone's going to be watching um, this issue very closely for the next few years as we as the Dem- Democratic and the Republican parties try to figure out their way around the, the new the new landscape, the whole new world um, that we're that we're in as a result of that. You know, if the if the Republicans do indeed end up taking the House of Representatives back, it's going to mm-hmm. be really interesting to watch how they navigate these these waters. I mean, watch. I, I, I don't think uh, anyone is good, can predict <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to, though, just for fun, because I want to yeah. be on record, yeah. right? If they take the yeah. House back, which I think they might, I think they will, um, but I, who knows? But if they do, it'll be by a very slim amount. They will, you know, they will fall into Jim Jordan world 
in order not to deal with these tough questions, in order not to have to be on record about them, it will be nonstop chaos, nonstop investigations, nonstop dog whistle nonsense, which I think will be enormously painful for them. I mean, I think Americans won't put up with it. They'll long for, you know, the stability of Nancy Pelosi. and her Right. So um, well, but that's my you know, prediction. Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, like, it's it's important to note that even though, you know, as as I pointed out, a lot of these election deniers lost these statewide races, a lot of them did win in, you know, in some state legislative races. And a lot of them, can probably name yep. a few of them, are still sitting in the Senate and are still sitting in the House of Representatives and yep. are kind of, you know, dedicated um, you know, uh, mischief makers, that's a very mild way of putting it. You could say vandals of um, of our faith in democracy and in our election system. So, you know, that kind of goes back to, to the point that I was making, which is that it, it, it was a good result um, it, in terms of pushing back on election deniers, but it's not over. Yeah, and, and the threat is not just from um, the political, the so-called political actors, but we have a just horrifying case in the Supreme Court that uh, that, you know, that they took on a funny idea, this notion of the independent legislative state legislator doctrine, which should never have gotten heard at the Supreme Court. But they invited it. They want it there. And that is a, a different way of denying an election. Yeah, the, the oral arguments on that are going to be on December 7th, and I, obviously I'm going to be tuning in really carefully and closely. And one of the reasons I'm going to be tuning in is because actually my organization, States United Democracy Center, which is a partner organization of States United Action, um, actually represented one of the parties on that mm-hmm. case. Um, and so as, as a result of that, I can't really speak too much about that publicly. You've got to let the, the court papers speak for themselves. Um, but December 7th, that's going to be an important day. Well, it's pretty interesting. Great to know that we're going to hear this case about about whether we should change, whether we should possibly strip voters of their right to pick electors. Um, and this, you know, on the anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Boy, that is... <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure anyone thought about that when they scheduled it, but but no. Right. But you know, life is mysterious. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Yeah. So, but wow. tune in. <laughs> what, what, what's going to happen with? Um, what do you guys do next? You you've been publishing sort of uh, papers about this. You've had a yeah. website that that has been sort of listing the candidates we should watch which states mm-hmm. have election deniers running what's mm-hmm. is, is strategy say the same you know but continue through the next cycle or are there some other um other kinds of approaches that you're thinking about yeah so obviously we're going to keep tracking this issue um because yep. just this was this was one election Helpful. there's plenty more to yep. come um, yep. And so that's absolutely. And then the the other thing that we're going to be paying really careful attention to 
is the kind of now that we're moving into the the season of legislating, you know, all of these new legislatures have been elected. um, And now that we move into the season of of legislating, we're going to be watching really carefully to see what uh, bills are introduced and what laws um, are enacted that may be kind of take the the legal uh, legislative angle to election denialism. You you probably remember in 2021, you know, at the end of, at the beginning of 2021, we saw all of those phony audits launched. We saw this wave of legislation that was introduced in like Texas, Georgia, Florida, that kind of combined voter suppression with voter subversion ideas. Um, so, you know, we're going to be obviously tracking that really carefully and seeing whether or not more of these bills start getting introduced and start getting passed, because that's the that's the kind of um, that's the kind of twin of the election denier movement. That's the, the deniers are the refs. They you know, the legislators are the subverters, you know. So we get, we're going to be watching both of those both of those issues. And, you know, we're just going to be. And we're going to be getting ready for 2024. <laughs> right. Will, will you be the, in the watching other, them? Will the you other, be tracking them for the rest of us in the same way? Will there be a way that, to go to your site and see the bills and see what we should be paying attention to? Yeah, they, absolutely. That's going to be uh, that's going to be available. And the other thing that we're going to be doing is really working hard to hold election deniers who who either keep their campaign promises <laughs> who were elected mm-hmm. to keep their campaign promises accountable or, you know, some of the other kind of prominent anti-democracy actors in this space are also people who we're going to be uh, working hard to hold accountable. Uh, I'll give you one example. Um, I think a lot of people know that there's an investigation going on in, um, in Fulton County, Georgia right now of uh, Trump's actions uh, regarding, you know, when he was looking for 11,000 more votes down there, right? Yep. And there's a, yep. there's a, an, there's an investigation going on of that. Well, that district attorney attempted to subpoena Lindsey Graham to testify uh, before her grand jury, um, and he's been resisting uh, testifying all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And my organization, all along the way, has been filing. Uh, amicus briefs, which is kind of friend of the court briefs, um, all along the way from groups of uh, bipartisan groups of former prosecutors explaining why Lindsey Graham uh, should be compelled to testify before that grand jury. So that's the sort of stuff that we're going to keep working on. I have a a crazy question for you. The, The Supreme Court in Ohio said you can't use the legislative districts you're using to run congressional elections. Mm-hmm. They're illegal. They're illegal. Um, the, mm-hmm. the legislature in Ohio said to the Supreme Court, yeah, you know what? We don't have time to deal with you. We're going to make our voters vote in these districts you say are illegal. There's mm-hmm. no power in the state of Ohio to enforce a constitutional requirement on the legislature to to remedy this. They, they can't do it. The Supreme Court said, they, they, right? They just didn't care what the Supreme Court said. There's no power to fix this because the executive and legislative branches ignored them. The only remedy, I think, is if Congress says, we will not seat any of the 15 uh, uh, 
people who come out of these elections from uh, go back and rerun it on on districts that your state says are legal. What is that? I mean, how do we hold people accountable for real law breaking that undermines our democracy? Well, um, that's a, it, it, I, I've got to say that that's not something that I've, I've really done a lot of research on. Um, obviously, there's, there's no question that uh, the that that the House of Representatives could investigate the legitimacy of the you know of the people who were elected out of Ohio because of the yeah. the kind of the, the failed maps there. Um, it would be a pretty extreme step. Um, I agree, but it was so an extreme I, step. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and the Supreme Court has said we don't care about gerrymandering. We're not we're not having anything to do with it. The the federal courts are closed to this question. So I don't know yeah. who who gets to who. Is it just done? You can cheat and it's okay on something as important as voting. I, well, I, I think I think my, my understanding is and. and and uh, I, I admit that this is uh, this is based on, you know, kind of probably not enough research for me to be, you know, totally confident in my answer. But I, I believe that these elections that, that these elections were conducted under those maps, but that uh, the next elections, uh, the, the Ohio Supreme Court will force to be done under more more appropriate maps. Well, so I, they, I, had I, a, I, they, they had a they had a. Maybe they, they, they also changed yeah. the rules on how you get to be in the Supreme Court. Um, and and now there's a partisan. Uh, um, this was a Republican appointed court before, but now it's a bigger Republican appointed court. And they may retroactively say, oh, you know, that last court was wrong and these maps are fine. So who knows? Yeah. But, yeah. But I, yeah. I don't know. You know, it feels like like that's more in your wheelhouse than mine to think about how how our country can deal with state level nefarious and illegal uh i mean you know the the if you look at the map making numbers maybe a third of the of the outcome is dependent on the gerrymander so it's yeah no that no you're, you're absolutely right i mean uh uh the, the, the gerrymandering really did have a, a pretty significant impact on um on the composition of the house um, at the, yeah. that we're looking at that's coming in, um, you know, the good news and there is good news, which is that, you know, a lot of states have slowly but surely begun implementing, um, you know, kind of independent redistricting commissions that yeah. that take the that take the power to redistrict out of the hands of the politicians who are most likely to do it for their own personal benefit rather than for democracy and for the voters. And that is a, a wave that's happening across the country. Um, we'll see uh, We'll see what comes of it. And I, I have a feeling that it's going to pick up and, and more states are going to begin adopting that slowly. But yeah, sure. I hope so, too. And I mean, I live in a, in a democratically gerrymandered state. Um, both parties do it. Um, but because of a sort of quirk in, in in when gerrymandering took off and the Supreme Court walking away from it, it happened when Republicans controlled more states. But it's not that they their DNA is more. Uh, when you put the people who are elected in charge of elections, it doesn't matter what party they are. They're going to do it in a way that's a problem. Yeah, yeah no, you're right. You know, uh, one of the... Uh 
one of the states that's kind of most notorious for um, partisan gerrymandering is is Maryland, which does it on behalf of Democrats. So, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, it'd be a good problem to fix. But but in New York, where they did it right Um, and the Democrats, this was a huge problem for the Democrats in terms of control of the House when their Supreme Court said your maps are illegal. They complied and changed them. In Ohio, they did not comply. I, I don't yeah. know that, that there's, I just don't see this as, as meeting the fairness test, let alone a legal test. And I just, I'm hoping that people like you, people who know the laws and know the structures to deal with them, can help think of remedies. Because I, yeah. the only one I can think of is the house saying, go home. And I think that's really going to be tough. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's 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 that's going to be really really tough to do something really like tough. that. But um, but I don't but, have an but alternative. I hear you, but I hear you. Yeah. I hear you about yeah. looking for creative and new approaches for accountability. Um, I think that that's something that that really um, you know that we need to that we need to do. Okay. Well, on that note, we've run the clock out again, Victoria. As always. Really great to talk to you. Uh, your organization is awesome. Before you leave, will you tell people the website, where to go? Because there's a lot of information there, but it's also updated, and you're going to have new stuff in a new cycle. Yeah, so it's it's called statesuniteddemocracy.org, um, O-R-G, and you can see all of our reports there. Like I said, our two main ones are that replacing the rest one, that we're going to have an update on that pretty soon, as soon as, you know, kind of, We've settled all of the results of this current election, and we'll be doing more going forward. And the other thing that I I mentioned, which is the legislative efforts, that's another report that we do. It's called Democracy Crisis in the Making. Um, And we're going to be doing a December report on what we're seeing coming out of the 2022 election and um, as the legislature set up for 2023. There it is, everybody. And, you know, bookmark it because you've got to go back to it and see how things change. Always a pleasure. And we will talk soon, I hope. Yeah, great talking to you. Okay. All right, everybody. We're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, it's your calls at 773-763-9278. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. All right, everybody. 773-763-9278. I want to hear from you. I want to hear what you thought about the election we've just been through or anything you've heard on this show today or anything else that's on your mind. Jim. Welcome. Hi, Edwin. I'm delighted with the result. And you work your behind off, and you should have a pan and a pack. I wish I could buy you a beer wherever you're at in the city. Anyway, <laughs> I'm delighted with I'm delighted with the result. And I'm just I'm curious. I, I'm sure somebody will crunch the numbers. I think Kennedy had a similar affair because he was assassinated. He but he got a stalemate during his. Uh, uh, you know, the two-year term like this, like Biden has had. But real quick, the thing that amazes me is Biden was underwater the whole time and the pundits were like, there's no way they're going to vote for you. There's no way, there's no way. But it shows you the well-laid plans of mice and man. 
love and go astray. That's right. I mean, that's, that's right. That's right. I mean, I people that, were actually well. The, the, the pundits they, they spent all their time on the polls. They didn't spend their time on the people. I mean, that's how they got. That's how they they you know they said Hillary was going to win in a landslide. Um, part of that was they just didn't go out and understand our country. And in this case, the pundits, you know, a lot of men did not understand how important reproductive freedom is to women. That that get be their choice, not somebody else's. And, and these weren't all pro-abortion voters. These were people who said, I, "This isn't a, this isn't an abortion question. It's a freedom question. This is my choice. You're taking away." Right? And pundits just didn't pay any attention to that. And they didn't think young people would show up either, Jim. But young people are like, uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) We got to live with this mess. It's time to show up. And they did. (laughs) No, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I think that's really the story. You had to write the story is uh, how the younger voters are are hankering for democracy again. I don't care who wins or loses, but you have to have a good policy for the the people to come out and vote. That's the way, you know, you can't use, uh, what do they call it, you know, culture wars and wokeness and all this other baloney. You have to have a, even force the Democrats. They have a good, I mean, the Republicans too, they have a good policy. And then you, you could understand it and you can back it and vote that way. Anyway, I, I'm very delighted. Anyway, have a great show. Thank you, Ray Kamey. Have a good weekend, buddy. Thank you, Jim. Okay, as I said, 773-763-9278. And Jim's made a, you know, an interesting point. We do make policy choices. These elections are roadmaps, but we also make value judgments about the candidates. Do they reflect who we are? Um, and, you know, this time, I think Americans are just, they're just a lot more decent than the, you know, than the haters who got nominated, uh, on, on the, on the, on the Republican side. Hopefully there will be a reckoning in the Republican party and they will finally disgorge this loathing that has been uh, characteristic of their nominees since Trump um, and return to a right of center, but sane party that would do everybody some good. Eduardo, what do you think? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, how about somebody like John Kasich? He was, uh, he was good. He he, he sidelined and gone, right? Yep. They got, yeah, he got, yep. Yeah. I mean, the Republican Party is not the John Kasichs of the world. It's not the Liz Cheney's or Adam Kinzinger's anymore. Um, and it may not even be, I mean, they're going after, uh, well, they're going after everybody right now. I mean, even Mitch McConnell's not safe from their rage now. You know, I heard the other day that they're working over, I don't know <laughs> if this is going to be successful. So we'll have to decide. We'll, we'll have to see which way, which path Mr. DeSantis chooses. But uh, Mr. Bush, Jeb Bush, who's from Florida, is uh, rumored to be working him over kind of to pull him away from, you know, who. So I don't know. If well, that's I'm sure I'm sure they're, I, you know, I mean, this is Florida and there are alligators everywhere. I'm sure they are all after each other, you know, uh, Trump and DeSantis. I'm not really that worried about Donald Trump. I am convinced that, you know, you listen to Merrick Garland and he says, this isn't a question of politics. It's a question of the facts and the law. And I don't know how, if those are the questions, even with just the, what the public has seen, I don't know how the man isn't indicted. 
I, I don't know how he's not going to be convicted. Um, I mean, I, there are yeah. questions about whether it's good for the country to put him through this. Uh, again, there may, but I'm not sure the country has a choice, given the, what we know. We're going to find out pretty soon. Well, speaking of choice, before I get, my, uh, get to my COVID comment quickly here, uh, if by some reason there or chance there is a primary between DeSantis and Trump, everybody's going to get in there and vote for Trump because he's the easier candidate to, to uh, beat. Watch and see if they, that happens. Yeah, I don't, I, you know, Democrats did that this cycle. They spent money um, on some of the crazier Republicans to, right, to boost them. I personally think that's a dangerous game. You know, it's I do. a dangerous they game. They boomerang on you. Yeah. yeah I, 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 I mean, if the Republicans are going to nominate crazy people, they're going to nominate them. But it, uh, I, I, I don't want, I don't want to be responsible for ever helping them. It's too. It's just too dangerous. Yeah, real quickly on the uh, COVID thing. Uh, I know the cases are going up. Uh, I don't think we're going to see any kind of shutdown anymore. But I mean, people should go out there and get their shots and practice social distancing, and we'll be fine. Right. The new, sh- the, the the latest shot is is by all accounts very good with uh, the variants that are out there. Um, um, and this is, you know, this is combined COVID flu season. So for gosh sakes, get a flu shot, get a COVID shot. Um, and, you know, if you're be safe out there, if you're in a crowded room, you want to wear a mask, put a mask on. But if you're not feeling well, don't go out and get people sick. I mean, it's just, the, again, yeah, a little bit of common decency only, goes a long way. One. I don't think you need both. I think that's kind of like overkill to get both. But I, I'm not Get both what? Get both what? The flu shot and the COVID shot, yeah. Oh, no, they're different, they're different illnesses. I mean, you know, yeah. and flu is a – you know, flu costs the economy a lot of money every year because people get it and they stay home from work for four days. I mean, it's, it's, no, it's no fun, but it's also expensive to miss all that work. Yeah. Well, definitely get in, get, a, get out there and get a shot. So don't sit and, and act tough and, like, you're not going to get it. No, good counsel. I got mine, and they were very easy to see. It took you know two minutes at a local Walgreens, and in and out. So, all right. Well, Eduardo, thank you as always. I really appreciate it. Yep, you too. All right, I'm at seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you, uh, Kristen, calling from Rockford. Hello, hello, Edwin. Can you hear me? Uh, loud and clear. Okay, hi. I'm a long-time listener, uh, first-time caller, and uh, I'm an election judge in Rockford. At, okay, uh, so you're one of the heroes we celebrate today. Thank you. <laughs> well, Thank you. You're, you're, you're welcome. It's a joy to work with my neighbors. This is the, the fourth or fifth election I've worked now, and um, I just wanted to report that people in my area who voted at our, our polling place were happy to vote. Um, they were overwhelmingly positive, and turnout was fantastic. Um, not, I, I mentioned to the uh, screener, not quite presidential, but really, really strong turnout. We were thrilled. Yeah, turnout was turnout was remarkable for a midterm, um, yeah. and, and you know, voters were determined. I think they were also. Scared, you know, I mean, there was so much at stake. I think voters were scared. 
Well, you know, uh, my feeling is that uh, a little a little fear is a good motivator, and uh, I was I was just you know I'm I am happy that folks took it seriously in my area and uh, and really showed up. So just wanted to did, share that. Did, did a lot of young people show up? Yes, in fact, um, we had we had a, a group of appeared uh, to be maybe high school girls or maybe early college um, brought in a friend, registered on the spot, and cast her vote. Oh, that's nice. And 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 was it? I'm just trying to understand it related to some of the bigger trends. Uh, uh, in terms of gender, was there a difference in 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 uh, you know in voting? You know, at at our place, I would say it was it was pretty even. We we usually we we usually see you know based on my experience now, we usually see the same folks all the time. Um, but yep. it was it was definitely an increase in in people and um, probably equal numbers. You know what? A lot of married couples voting together. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of moms, a couple of dads brought their kids. Everybody got a sticker. Um, it was really kind of a, a, a festive uh, atmosphere. And uh, very uh, just just a lot of happy people coming to see us. You're making a really good point, which is at the end of the day, it's an, I mean, America's an enormous, enormous country, and and you know mm-hmm. we but but voting is a is a neighbor thing. We get together. We we we. I mean, you're there with the neighbors, right? You're helping. You know everybody. You've seen them before, or you're meeting new people. But you but they're coming in with people you already know. I mean, that's one of the reasons why elections are secure, right? It's it's really a community project. I I agree. I agree. I'm the person. My job in the in the polling place is to uh, help the person put their vote in their ballot into the tabulator and um it's just a, a very happy feeling right across the board when they see it go in and get scanned and it counts up one more voter and uh you know and of course we counted pretty high uh, people were they were pleasantly surprised that mm-hmm. so many mm-hmm. people came to vote along with them well thank you for sharing that story Kristen. it's really um you know, it conf- it confirms uh, really good feelings about this election and that Americans, we can run elections. You know, we do a lot of things wrong. We do a lot of things right. One of the things we do right is we know how to have free and fair elections. And, and Evan, I could not agree with you more. Thanks so much for your show. I, I listen all the time. Oh, really appreciate that. Really do. Have a good day. Okay. All Thank right, you. folks. We Yep. We are at seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight. I think I'm going to take my last commercial break right now. But when we come back, seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. This is WCPT eight twenty, where facts matter. You're listening to the Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT eight twenty. Hello there. I am taking your calls at 773-763-9278. So much to talk about. Ron, what's on your mind? Uh, yes, I have a question about the election. Uh, the uh, total votes across the country was, was broken down by age group, and the age of 65 and over, over supposedly voted overwhelmingly for Republicans. There was a 13% gap in uh, 
kind of hard to believe since uh, Republicans want to do away with, uh, with the uh, Social Security and Medicaid. So I don't know. Was that, uh, was that uh, erroneous or the, could that be true? I, 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 I haven't seen that, and I don't. It doesn't sound right to me, and I think it's no. premature to know. First off, you know, it, that would all be exit poll data or polling data because obviously you go vote, your vote's cast, and nobody knows who cast what vote, right? So um, that would all be uh, a, a polling data, and our polls have not uh, distinguished themselves <laughs> in this cycle. They got everything wrong, so I wouldn't surprise me if they got that wrong too. But you are right on the merits that the, the – Republicans ran on very few things, but one of the things they ran on, uh, particularly the folks running for Senate, the Senate Campaign Committee, they said, we are going to cut Social Security and Medicare. It's just time to cut them. And I think, uh, you know, as President Biden said, you were in that way. You worked for your Social Security. You contributed to it your whole life. This isn't theirs to take away, but, you know, Neither was reproductive choice for women, but they took it anyway. So um, I, I think you're you're right to raise that question, Ron. Really right. Okay. Uh, okay. Thank you. You bet. You bet. Thank you for calling. All right. Seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight. Furl, what's on your mind? So um, I, I think you're you're right to raise that question, Ron. Uh, okay. Thank you. You bet. Thank you for calling. Hello. Oh, hi. Uh, I would like to talk about our local Chicago situation with all of the people that are running for mayor. And now that Chewy got into it, I, I, I don't know how... Anybody can really stand a chance to win. Um, I have been for Lori, but I don't know. And now that Tom Tunney has said he's not going to run for mayor, I would like to know your opinion of all these 11 or 12 or however many candidates there are. Well, you know what? I... um focus this show on national politics for a reason, um, because I uh, uh, am involved in the mayor's race, and I really don't want to talk about that just now. Um, but I think your, your observation that there are a lot of people in it, um, and uh, that, it, you know, it's in February. I mean, it's coming up very fast, very fast, right? I mean, you have, you have uh, at least two holidays between now and the election. Um, Three, Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving, um, and then we vote in a very cold time in February. So there's a lot for those candidates to do in a short time. We'll see how many get their petitions in, right? Um, but I know Chicagoans are very concerned, very, very concerned this cycle. New Year's, Thanksgiving, um, and then we vote in a very cold time in February. For all you there? I'm having... Yeah, Phil, could you turn down your radio? It's it, it's creating a um, uh, uh, feedback. Right. Sorry about that, Phil. All right, we're at seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight, and I'm taking your calls to talk about uh, the elections and 
I mean, Furl was was calling to change the channel right away. Boy, we got through one. She wanted to talk about the next one, which is the uh, uh, mayoral election in Chicago. Um, and yeah, people are concerned. People want to do the right thing. Different kind of election, different kinds of issues. Um, much more about governing and much less about the kind of big politics that, uh, you know, that, that where candidates differ so much across the whole country. Um, uh, for those of you who listened to the whole show, um, I want to say, I thought it was a couple things were really interesting for me today. And I wonder if you feel the same way. I mean, Sarah Posner, you know, this never fails to scare me when she talks about the persistence of the, what she calls the Christian nationalist right and how that's not going away and how they are engaged in a spiritual war and a political war to make America a certain version of white Christian, um, theocracy. I mean, she said, you know, guys running and, for governor, he says, this will be um, the government that Jesus would have. I, I, I don't understand that. Is it how that how that squares with our constitution or our history? Um, and I really wonder: uh, is that where we could be headed? I, I don't think so. I think this election was a repudiation of that by most Americans. But, you know, she pointed out that this court doesn't care what most Americans think. That's why they do voter suppression and voter and, and, and try and change the rules so that the, our votes don't count as much. It's absolutely terrifying. But she, she was, um, you know, I think happy with the results, happy that we both read a book that almost no one reads uh, on these issues. Um, but Sarah was really interesting. And um, I, I think she, uh, she and Victoria Bassetti, who comes at this from the legal side, right, when they're talking about the legal challenges that we face in keeping election deniers um, from running elections, both of them raise very serious and ongoing threats to the democracy that says, hey, you know, we can feel really good about an election we just had, and we should, but vigilance is required. And, um uh, that's what we're going to keep talking about here because I don't think we are out of the woods. And if we get a break from the politics, I want to talk with you about governing, right? Because when the noise is turned down, right? The, the, he said, she said, the, you're an election denier, you're telling lies. When that's done, the government has to work. You have to make policy decisions and then carry them out with vigor and efficiency to, to make, you know, America move forward again. The infrastructure bill that we passed, right? It's now, um, beginning to be time to put all that money to work. That means we have to, you know, get the money to states, have a process in place, get the, contracts, the, the projects decided, get the contracts let, then oversee all of that to make sure that it's not wasted and see the benefits in our neighborhoods and in our ports and in our airports and with Wi-Fi all around the country. But those are hard things to do. They're hard things to do. That's why you elect people who know something about government, right? I mean, Donald Trump knew nothing about government, thank goodness, or some of the worst things he wanted to do, he might have actually been able to do. But you know what? He didn't know enough about government to get him to, to get him done. He couldn't even build his wall. But if you so so 
when you elect people who understand the government, and I think this cycle, by and large, voters did, you can expect that the government will do a job. And it'll do the job we want it to do. Build the roads. Have schools that we can send our kids to that, you know, focus on educating our kids, not some crazy politics, but focus on the children and their future. That use our money efficiently so that the tax dollars we give the government, we see where they're spent. Um, but there's some big policy things that that I hope Biden can still accomplish. Um, I would love to see them put back the the uh, child tax credit. It, it had done such a good job to relieve the worst poverty in America. And all of that helps. And if you think that's not related to the crime issues that people are feeling in cities all around the country, you're missing something really important. So oh, oh, we're going to talk about governing, not just politics in the breathing space we have. And I think you're going to like that. I think it's going to be interesting. Um, anyway, um, uh, I will be with you next week. We continue to roll forward. Um, we are moving into different kinds of elections, mayoral elections. I really don't want to spend too much time on that because these big, this is called the big picture for a reason. There are a lot of things to talk about. And next week, maybe we'll even talk about Biden's visit with President Xi and what that means because the stakes could not be higher on the global stage. And we don't spend um, very much time on foreign policy questions here, P partly because America's was obscured with all of our own democracy stuff. I really think they're fascinating. I think you will too. Um, and they're very, very important for our future. So I'm going to let you go. I've rambled enough here. Um, it was a pleasure being with you today. It was a pleasure uh, this whole week uh, in living through this great election. We just had a free and fair choice by more than 100 million Americans who came out, the many like uh, Kristen who called earlier, who worked the polls to make that happen. You know, we're grateful to all of you, as always, and grateful for the work you did to help us get through this remarkable election cycle. I will see you next week. Um, Paul and Julia, thank you for your help. <laughs>